Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And you too, Bill. How are you doing? So good, RFM. How are you? I'm just fantastic. I've got a, I actually have a, a sweatshirt on tonight, and it's not a Marvel superhero. Mm-hmm. No, this is Omni Man uh, from yes. the very, very famous now Invincible comic book drawn by my very, very favorite comic book artist, Ryan Otley. And this is season two just came out. Uh, season one was like a little over a year ago. There's some quite a bit of time between season one and season two. Uh, my wife and I watched all of season one. We need to catch up on season two that started, uh, but quite a great show. Uh, a lot more complexity to human character than you often find in uh, past comic book type of stuff. Yes. Well, these are not your, these are not my comic books, even <laughs> not even your dad's comic books. No. They're not my comic books no. from when I was a kid. How's life treating you? Wonderful. Thank you very much. And I hope you're doing well, too. I am. I'm doing quite well. So, folks, before we start, RFM, is there anything from you before we begin the show? No, I am excited because we're going to talk about the Mormon view, uh, Mormon version of Omni-Man, whose name is what, Bill? It's Moroni. Moroni. It's this. Voice from the dust. The life of Moroni. Or if we were doing this podcast back in the 1960s, we would have called it everything you wanted to know about Moroni, but we're afraid to ask. Yes, and it is just like that. And uh, I did announce last week that we would do a drinking game. I'll announce the rules of that right now, which is, uh, folks, whatever alcohol you have, you're going to want to pace yourself. If you are taking two-ounce shots every time, you're going to end up uh, not only with a bad hangover, you're going to end up with alcohol poisoning. I also want to say as a disclaimer, uh, no drinking and driving, please. Uh, you should be doing all of this within the safety of your own home. You should uh, drink responsibly. Uh, and if you are out and about, you should definitely have a designated driver. And all of those, all of those correct things, don't be afraid to Uber home. Uh, here's the rules. Is I think there are a ton of absurdities about Mormonism's truth claims simply in the life of Moroni. And we're going to go through, I think, most of them. And And some new ones. Yep. Every time you sense an absurdity about the data points of Moroni and his life and the things he did, you will take a drink and you can pick what the size of that drink is, but I'm telling you, you're going to drink a lot. So please pace yourselves responsibly. Uh, any again, any thoughts from you, RFM? Well, otherwise, we'll jump right into. Slide I'm the designated driver tonight because, as between the two of us, I'm the one who's still a member of the church. Yes, yeah, so you definitely should not be drinking and don't. And uh, and uh, I, of course, am probably half in the bag as we speak. So <laughs> with uh, without uh, without any more pause, let's jump into it. So the first thing I wanted to start with is just to mention that we know approximately the date of uh, Moroni's birth. And uh, H. Donald Peterson, who years back would have been seen as sort of the expert on Moroni, he wrote two BYU papers on Moroni. Uh, He's quoted as saying, Moroni was probably born close to the middle of the 4th century AD. And I just want to note, my note is here, seriously, 350 AD, that creates a 70 to 80-year-old man hauling around plates. And that explains, by the way, the church agrees with us that he is this old, because you'll notice that the church has Moroni in all of its images with very gray hair and often portrayed as a very old man. Uh, look at that living scriptures. That is not a young guy. And uh, even in the church's 
recent uh, video series on the Book of Mormon, this is the man they have playing Moroni. And the reason mm -hmm. Donald Peterson knows this is because of Mormon chapter six. In the heading of the chapter, we get these approximate dates that the Book of Mormon is taking place. The heading for Mormon 6 says that about A.D. 385 is when this chapter takes place. And in verse 12, and we also beheld the 10,000 of my people who were led by my son Moroni. So this is Mormon talking to us. Moroni is already leading a military force of 10,000. H. Donald Peterson suggests and others suggest, again, by the depiction of Moroni being old, that Moroni would have had to have been around at least 25 years old, reasonably, to be leading this army, and maybe even older. Um, and any thoughts from you, RFM, on up to this point? No, you're doing great. And you're going to get to uh, the, the last battle, 421 AD, right? Uh, at some point, we will get to sort of some oh, of the things going on around that last battle. And the Book of Mormon says that the final battle uh, was 421 AD, which means that if you do the math, then Moroni, even if he were just 25 years old, when he's leading this uh, army about 385, he'd be 71 by then. 71. And we know that the plates then get buried sometime after that because you can't write the account in 421 AD if you still have the plates in your possession. And so the plates would have gone into the earth in uh, the hill Camorra, the second hill Camorra in Palmyra. Uh, for folks who are wondering why we're mentioning two hills, go see earlier episodes of Mormonism Live on the hill Camorra, the second hill Camorra. And uh, also there was an episode there on the second Watson letter, which tied into that episode as a follow-up as well. Um, and you know, I was always wondering why it is that Moroni is such an old guy. He's always so buff. Well, I finally figured it out. Why he's always so buff and well-muscled? Because mm. he works out regularly. You know where? Where does he do that at? At Gold's Gym. <laughs> I was looking for the laugh button and I couldn't. <laughs> Gold's Gym. And I'm the if, laugh button. Yeah. And if nobody's. I'm if, the laugh track. If somebody's not a, a, a Latter-day Saint, if you're a non-Mormon listening, which we do have a few of those in the crowd. Uh, of course, this ties into Mormonism's gold plates and yes. her and I working out at Gold's Gym. All right. Thank you for putting a fine point on it, Bill. Yeah, you're welcome. I just want to make sure that anybody <laughs> who doesn't know the details gets them. All right, All right so, but there's more. Yes. So first off, the first absurdity is in that last slide. If you're talking about Central South America in 385 AD, the logistics of providing food, some sort of shelter if needed. I mean, maybe it's the climates, of course, in this area are fine enough that people can just sleep on their back out in the middle of nowhere. But uh, the logistics of providing for a military force in terms of taking care of the wounded, providing food and drink to people, accommodating folks uh, with other needs that, that militaries have. The idea that there's a, a military force of 10,000 people, this would be practically, if not completely unheard of in this time period. It's part of the reason why when we run into the Book of Mormon telling us that there are large forces in tens of thousands, if not millions in some instances, fighting on the Hill Cumorah, the critics point to that just being absurd to the point where Michael Ash, apologist for the church, agrees that the most likely explanation if the church is true is that Mormon and Moroni are embellishing the numbers significantly. Uh, so you already have your first absurdity here uh, with uh, Moroni leading a military force of 10,000. Okay, 
RFM. Mm-hmm. If you can see the wording there, would you mind reading this? This is uh, from Orson F. Whitney's uh, account of Heber C. Kimball. This is Bookcraft 1967. Uh, and this is where we get the, the second data point. Okay. And this is the great story and the famous story about Moroni blessing the site of the Manti Temple. Because when you're lugging around these heavy gold plates across the, the northern hemisphere, the first thing you want to do is take a detour out to, to Utah before you go to New York. At a conference held in Ephraim, San Pete County, June 25th, 1875, nearly all the speakers, by the way, this is from a biography of Heber C. Kimball written by Orson F. Whitney. All right. So at a conference here, blah, 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 nearly, but it's San Pete County. And I take it, Bill, that San Pete County, Manti's in San Pete County. Is that correct? Um, I'm going to look that up here. Let's see it here. San Pete. I mean, you're the Utah boy, so I would expect you would know. Maven? Maven? Do you want to? No, no, nothing. It's got to be, right? So while you're looking it up, I'll continue. At a conference held in Ephraim, San Pete County, nearly all the speakers expressed their feelings to have a temple. Was that how San how San Pete is pronounced? I would think so. Yeah, that's that's right. San Pete, and yeah. Manti's in San, San Pete, Pete County. County. Yes, as a snow college. Makes that's sense. A, I got my article. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> and continuing, where to build it? So all these people are talking. They gave their views as to what point and where to build it. The temple. It's a matter of discussion. And to show that, and to show the union that existed, Elder Daniel H. Wells said Manti, George Q. Cannon, Brigham Young Jr., John Taylor, Orson Hyde, Erastus Snow, Franklin D. Richards, Lorenzo Young, and A.M. Muss said Manti Stone Quarry. So look how close they are, right? I have given the names in the order in which they spoke. At 4 o'clock p.m. that day, President Brigham Young said, the temple should be built on Manti Stone Quarry, which is, strangely enough, the site that he was in favor of when he spoke. Okay? So you got to understand that while he's talking about the union that existed, what he's really talking about is sort of the disunion because we have a discussion which could even have been an argument about where to build the temple. Okay, we've got to figure it out. We're going to do it in Manti, but where in Manti are we going to build it? And there's one person, it's Daniel Wells, he says Manti, and the others are saying, no, the Manti Stone Quarry, and among those others is Brigham Young. So now, with this discussion going on, with this disagreement going on, Brigham Young receives a revelation that shows that his side is the correct one, the Stone Quarry. So President, early on the morning of April 25th, 1887, President Brigham Young asked Brother Warren S. Snow to go with him to the Temple Hill. Brother Snow says, we two were alone. President Young took me to the spot where the temple was to stand. We went to the southeast corner, and President Young said, here is the spot where the prophet Moroni stood and dedicated this piece of land for a temple site. And that is the reason why the location is made here, and we can't move it from this spot. Why would they be discussing moving from from that spot unless it was a matter of dispute? And if you and I are the only persons that come here at high noon today, we will dedicate this ground. This is the only temple that I know of where there's something like crazy happening as far as the dedication goes. 
I mean, Moroni, this is the story. It's the Manti Temple. We all know it. We don't hear about Moroni or anybody else in the Book of Mormon dedicating any other modern temple, but this is the one. And when I read it in context, it struck me that this looks like the invocation of the Revelation card by Brigham Young in order to settle the dispute in his favor and have the temple built at the freaking Manti Stone Quarry because Moroni said so. Yeah, and by having... By by stating that Moroni traveled to Manti to bless the temple site, what you end up doing is creating a, a problem, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it's essentially the distance that man that uh, Moroni would have to travel to go from, if the uh, Mesoamerican apologists are correct, to go from Central America to Manti, Utah and then over to Palmyra, New York, in order to bury the plates. And even if the Heartlanders are correct, to go from Palmyra, New York, to Manti, Utah, back to Palmyra, New York. Um, and we'll get to some of these details here. H. Donald Peterson, I mentioned him early on. He said, several years ago, I came across two copies of a map in the archives division of the Historical Department of the Church relative to Moroni's North American journeys. See figures one and two, and we'll show you those in a moment. On the back of the map in figure one is written the following, a chart and description of Moroni's travels through this country. Got it from Brother Dixon. He got it from Patriarch William McBride at Richfield in this, and I don't know how to pronounce that, but Sevier, and also from Andrew M. Hamilton of same place, and they got it from Joseph Smith, the prophet. So they are, the writing on the back of it is giving the provenance of it. And this goes back to Joseph Smith and his associates um, much earlier in church history. So we'll see the first map. It's in cursive handwriting. Little things that I notice is Central America spelled with an S instead of a C. Um, I'm looking here. Camora uh, is spelled strange. It looks like C-O-M-M-O-R-E maybe, New York. Uh, Nauvoo, Hancock seems fine. But there's different parts of the map that the spelling is sort of strange. There's a second copy we'll see in a moment. The spelling isn't even consistent from one copy to the other, although there was some agreement that this might be the same handwriting on both pieces. Yes, Maven? I just wanted to say it's Sevier County. Hmm. It's a it's at the neighboring county to San Pete, but yeah. We're not gonna pronounce it the French way, Bill. Okay, just say it. Sevier, sweet. Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, H. Donald Peterson's explanation of the map, it's on the map, Land Bountiful is listed in Central America with an S. The cartographer wrote starting point below reference to Central America. Above the Land Bountiful is Sand Hills in the south part of Arizona. And above it to the left is Salt Lake. To the right is Independence, again spelled incorrectly, Jackson County, Missouri. And above that is Adam on Diamond. So instead of Adam on Diamond, it's sort of the strange separation of the word and strange spelling of the word, Davis County, Missouri. To the right of that is Nauvoo, Hancock, uh, Illinois. Below that is Mound Kinderhook, which is where the Kinderhook plates were found, which still shows that the uh, leaders of the church at this time who are creating this map with Joseph Smith, according to H Donald Peterson and the Providence mm -hmm. on the back, find some significance still in the Kinderhook area where the Kinderhook plates were found 
almost certainly tying into the Kinderhook plates. Uh, in fact, it even mentions here six plates bell shape were found. And uh, were was was on one copy. I don't know what that means. Then to the right and above that is Kirtland, Ohio. And then to the right of that is Camora, spelled wrong, New York. Below this on the right-hand side of the map is written Moroni's Travels, starting from Central America to Sand Hills, Arizona, then to Salt Lake, Utah, then to Adam Ande Amon, then to Nauvoo, Illinois, then to Independence, Missouri, then to Kirtland, Ohio, then to Camora, New York. And then there's the second map, and it's very similar to the first. It has essentially all of the same directions. Some of the spelling is different, uh, but for the most part, it is the same uh, map. And H. Donald Peterson says about this second map, the second map appears to have been drawn by the same hand and is quite similar to the first, though it twice spells Arizona as Arasoni and has A written over it. Eden is written near the circle identifying independence. By the way, the church today says it doesn't know where the Garden of Eden was. The According to these maps, Joseph Smith and early associates knew exactly where the Garden of Eden was. Um, this uh, is written, the circles identifying independence where Adam blessed his posterity is written near the circle identifying Adam on Diamond. The Mississippi River spelled wrong is listed near Nauvoo. Kirtland is twice spelled Kirtland, K-E-R-T, and Kimora is spelled Kenora or N Kimora, but without the H at the end. Um, a couple little pieces here, and then I'm going to turn some time over to you, RFM. It's interesting to note that the brethren mentioned on these documents were contemporaries of the prophet Joseph Smith, and they credited him with the notion that the travels of Moroni begin in the land Bountiful, which was in Central America, and went through Western New York. Why Moroni took the route he did is still without answers, and we'll get to that because I think you actually have a good response for this. These men stated that the prophet Joseph believed Bountiful is in Central America, while the Hill Camorra, the burial place of the plates, is in New York. So this is sort of a hemispheric model of, of the Book of Mormon if we're to buy what he's, what he's selling us. Uh, I just want to show the map one more time. And then what I did was I took all of these waypoints, put them into Google Maps. It actually looks much different than what you see here. Um, and I just want to note what he said again. Moroni's travel starting from Central America to Sand Hills, Arizona, to Salt Lake, Utah, to Adam Andeaman, to Nauvoo, to Independence, to Kirtland, to Camorra. And so putting it into Google Maps, it looks nothing like the map they did. And you can see in the top left-hand corner, I've got uh, all of the various directions, uh, the waypoints. And I just want to note from this, we are proposing, again, if we're believing in the church, and even... Maybe I should say this, Arfin. Why don't you talk about the map for a moment and tell us whether you think this thing has ancient provenance according to what it claims, or what could we tell about this map? Okay. Well, H. Donald Peterson appears to be um, accepting this written, anonymously written, by the way, apparently, provenance on the back at face value, and that this map goes back to Joseph Smith, and that Joseph Smith is the one who wrote it. Well, if this were an insect, if this were an Encyclopedia Brown story, at the end of the story, Encyclopedia Brown would announce that he knew that Joseph Smith didn't write it. And then he'd say, and I'll tell you how. Then you have to go to the back of the book. And there you see where Encyclopedia Brown says, duh, it's called Salt Lake 
Utah on it. Okay. Yeah. Number one, Joseph Smith didn't know where the Saints were going to end up. He died before they left Illinois. Number two, it wasn't Utah. Okay. This suggests not only that Salt Lake had come into existence, but that Utah as a state had come into existence, which didn't happen until 1896. Furthermore, one of the things, I, I don't know if you saw, I was looking something up while you were talking earlier, Bill. Yep. Furthermore, Arizona, which is mentioned in the map, did not come into existence as a state until 1912. Yep. Having said all of that, I, I'll, I'll say one other thing. Can we get the um, the other map, the other one up there? Because it's a little bit clear for what I want to say. Is it that, is that one? the same one? I think that was the same one. There we go. Yeah, it's hard for me to tell. But basically, what happens is that whoever made this map, I think is after 1912, and I'll say something else about the person who made the map in a second, which, by the way, means it's not Joseph Smith. He was killed in 1844. Yeah. So, but they have Moroni going up through Utah so he can dedicate the Manti Temple, all right? This suggests a knowledge by the map maker, the cartographer of this story by Brigham Young that... Moroni went up and he dedicated the freaking Manti Temple spot because he had nothing better to do. There was no TV. I mean, you know, what's he going to do? He's just lugging plates around. He's got to get to Kimura. Okay. So having said that, that that was a temple spot. Now that idea is further suggested by the fact that once Moroni hits Utah, he makes a hard right and he doesn't just go straight to Kimura. He stops at all these other places that have temples or temple sites dedicated in church history. I mean, what does he go to? He goes to uh, he goes to Kirtland, however you spell it. He goes to Nauvoo, doesn't he? Yep. He goes to Adamondiamon. Yep. Goes to right. Yep. And then he finally ends up in Kimura. Yeah. So that is really suggestive of what the person who is writing this or drawing this is trying to communicate. Now, the final thing that just came to me, which is really obvious is that actually, I don't think this is a hemispheric model. I think this is a Mesoamerican model. Because if it were hemispheric, I mean, if that's Camorra, why not go out and come back? Instead, they have Moroni starting his journey from way down there, which is where the final battle was, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this suggests a person who believes in two hills, Camorra. Mm -hmm. And this was written and then falsely attributed to Joseph Smith to give it authority. That's my take on it. Yeah, and I agree with you. the The map is almost certainly a, a more modern reproduction with a false provenance written back into it. It would be interesting to know who did that and why. Uh, those people are all long gone, so we probably won't get to the bottom of it. But what I did do, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, and I want you to just go ahead. And I'm sorry, but but psychologically, the interesting thing about this is, is if I'm correct, okay, I don't know that I am. It seems to make sense to me at this point. But if I'm correct, that this is done after 1912 by a person who believes in the Central American theory, that limited uh, geography theory, right? Then it gets put into the archives. It subsequently gets found by H. Donald Peterson, and now it is trotted forth to do exactly what it was drawn to do in the first place, is to have those apologists who believe in the limited theory that it all happened in Mesoamerica, and there's two hills Camorra, right? That they look at this as evidence that Joseph Smith taught the same thing. It also stands as a testimony that the LDS version of Mormonism is true because the, the reorganized church stays out in Nauvoo. 
The other breakoffs go in various places, but if Moroni sees importance in Utah, it is a testimony that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS faction of Mormonism, is the true and living faction of all the breakoffs. Can I tell you that that's an important point you make because the idea of the two Camorras originally came from the reorganized church. Mm. This, as you say, should not probably be interpreted as being drawn by somebody from the reorganized church because of the primacy it gives to Salt Lake, Utah. This was somebody from the Brighamite branch who was trying to support the same idea that was adopted by some people in the LDS church from the reorganized church. It's also a way to give uh, evidence for Brigham Young's claim that Moroni went to Manti to bless it. If, if Brigham Young claims by revelation that Moroni made that trip, and then they find documents alleged to be from Joseph Smith that show that Moroni did it, it also testifies that Brigham Young was correct. And so there, I think there's several good reasons for why someone might have created these maps. But needless to say, you and I both agree this map is certainly not uh, accurate to the origin which is claimed for it. Um, yeah, and H. Donald Peterson, he's not a dummy, but this really is an Encyclopedia Brown story. This isn't a, a difficult one to decipher. No, but sometimes the believing brain is so easy to take things and accept them and not really even know where to challenge it because you're not even thinking to challenge it. You just automatically assume it's true. It's sort of the Kerry Molstein you know, I'll start with the assumption that the book of Abraham is true, and then I'll work everything back into it. Uh, there really isn't any reason to question things very hard. Um, and then I just want to note, whether the maps are true or not doesn't matter. We have a quote from Brigham Young claiming that Moroni still made the travel. And again, this map is one example. And the distance from Salt Lake City or Manti to Palmyra or to Central America are similar distances. So whether Moroni would have traveled from Central America to Manti back to Central America or Central America, I'm sorry, Central America to Manti to Palmyra or from Palmyra to, to Manti back to Palmyra, it wouldn't matter. The distance here is absurd to claim that a 70-year-old man carrying at minimum, according to the apologist, 55-pound 50 50 plates is traveling this distance. And maybe they go, well, he doesn't have to take the plates with him. He sets them down. That's fine. You have a 70-year-old man traveling across different altitudes, uh, different uh, climates, traveling through different predators that he's never seen before. He's traveling through uh, different uh, environments, different, uh, we've said climates, but certain kinds of weather, certain kinds of temperatures. Moroni is not prepared to make this uh this, this sort of trip. And when I was at a fair Mormon conference in, I think 2013, this was brought up in the conference and I forget the gentleman's last name, but his first name was Mark. Uh, he's an apologist and it's not Mark Asher's McGee. You and I were trying to guess at it earlier. It's not him. I, I remember, I remember what he looked like. I remember who it was. And I know Mac, Mark Asher's McGee fairly well. And I know it's not him, but he suggested there's one other time in history where somebody traveled a similar distance it was also in South and Central America, and then it was up like the uh, East Coast of the United States, but it was a similar distance of travel. And there is this one you know, person who's done this, and hence, it should be reasonable, rational for Moroni to have done it too. And I think that's just an absurd way to create an argument. It, it creates a very minimal amount of plausibility, but it, when you consider all the things that Moroni would have had to have done at a elderly age 
it it just isn't reasonable. It's not reasonable. The other thing too is that I'll just say the distance here. Um, I think it was saying 80, 89 days of walking. Again, this is in a modern world with sidewalks and roads. Um, 89 days of straight walking. This doesn't count your time to stop and to take a nap. You pointed that out to me earlier in the conversation when we were talking. 2,126 straight hours of walking. Every time you take a break, you got to add to that. 5,858 miles. Again, with, with roads and sidewalks, certainly that distance is significantly more treacherous and time-consuming the moment you take it out of a modern world and place it in 420 AD. Any thoughts from you there? Yeah, something occurs to me is that you've taken this, of course, very literally down to the hours and the miles and figured out how far it would be. And it's not something I would want to travel with or without gold plates. But the reason you're doing that is because the map maker took it quite literally. And so I think have the apologists. But it occurs to me, if you go back to the quote, did Brigham Young ever say anything about Moroni dedicating the site in mortality or as an angel? Did you're he right. distinguish the two? He doesn't. Um, you could have Moroni just magically appearing wherever, but that's sort of a, a way none of us could prove it's false, right? Like we can always make room that God is God works in mysterious ways. He just had Angel the or Moroni the guardian spirit go ahead and take care of blessing uh, Manti after posthumously, right? Or even posthumously. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but, re but really, I mean, according to the early stories, and we're going to get to some of those, Moroni is, as an angel, will appear as an old man sometimes, and but he doesn't have to walk wherever he goes. I mean, he will pop in and out like Samantha Stevens. Yeah, yeah. Twickle her nose, and there she goes. Very good. Look at that. All right. Um, do you want to read this one? This is from... I'm trying to remember offhand if I don't think I put the source down, but I think this was from Mormonism Unveiled. I know we have some later stuff from that as well. Mm -hmm. This is, I think it is an affidavit from uh, Willard Chase. Willard Chase. And it's him talking to Joseph Smith Sr. Do you want to read this one as well? Sure. You know what I always think of when I think of the name Willard? My God, look at the rats. Okay. Willard Chase. Is that like the, this is the, this is the she turned me into a newt story. I'm sorry, Bill, what were you saying? Is that the is that the secret of Nim or something? Willard the rat? To... No, it's Willard, the movie Willard. Okay. Ernest Borgnine right. is the one who gets the line that I am um, familiar with it. That I quoted. Okay. Oh my God, look at the rats. In the month of June, 1827. Now, this is uh Willard Chase and a close associate, as you said, of Joseph Smith. He knows his dad too. In the month of June, 1827, Joseph Smith Sr. Related to me the following story, Willard Chase speaking, that some years ago, a spirit had appeared to Joseph, his son, in a vision, and informed him that in a certain place there was a record on plates of gold, and that he was the, and that he was the person that must obtain them, and this he must do in the following manner. On the 22nd of September, he must repair to the place where was deposited this manuscript, dressed in black clothes, and riding a black horse with a switch tail and demand the book in a certain name. And after obtaining it, he must go directly away and neither lay it down nor look behind him. They accordingly fitted out Joseph with a suit of black clothes and borrowed a black horse. He repaired to the place of deposit, 
and demanded the book, which was in a stone box, unsealed, and so near the top of the ground that he could see one end of it, and raising it up, took out the book of gold. But fearing someone might discover where he got it, he laid it down to place back the top stone as he found it. And turning round to his surprise, there was no book in sight. He again opened the box, and in it saw the book, and attempted to take it out, but was hindered. He saw in the box something like a toad, which soon assumed the appearance of a man, and struck him on the side of his head. Not being discouraged at trifles, he again stooped down and strove to take the book, when the spirit struck him again, and knocked him three or four rods, and hurt him prodigiously. After recovering from his fright, he inquired why he could not obtain the plates, to which the spirit made reply, because you have not obeyed your orders. And if you don't understand that, it's because he took his eyes off the plates, right? Okay. He then inquired when he could have them and was answered thus, come one year from this day and bring with you your oldest brother and you shall have them. This spirit, he said, was the spirit of the prophet who wrote this book and who was sent to Joseph Smith to make known these things to him. It is, it is this source that Mark Hoffman capitalizes on when he creates the white salamander letter. And it is him knowing, it's Hoffman knowing that there is this reference in early church history. And you said, it, I actually didn't say this, but you mentioned it. Willard Chase is really Joseph's first right-hand man. It's the two of them that are digging together that find the egg-shaped seer stone rock in 1822 um, when the two of them are digging either treasure digging or digging a hole for a well or whatever it is they're digging, but they dig a, a hole and, and Willard and Joseph find the egg-shaped rock and Joseph Smith convinces Willard to let him have it. There are later uh, affidavits from Willard Chase where he says, I wanted that stone back and he wouldn't give it to me. Um, so I just want to note the connection here to Mark Hoffman, why Hoffman chose to say white salamander, why he chose to play on that story was because there was a hint of truth to his letter, which he always did. He always found a nugget of truth to build around. And uh, and he then borrowed uh, essentially a, a idea or concept from this story, simply changing toad into a white salamander. Uh, but I also want to note Willard Chase, and we'll see this again. Willard Chase is saying that Joseph Smith Sr. informed him that when he came back a year later to the Hill Cumorah, he was to bring his oldest brother Alvin with him. Hmm. And we'll get to more of that later. Anything else on this RFM that you want to note? No, not. No, thank you. Okay. Moroni gives uh, Joseph Smith 10 rules. By the way, the church agrees with these. There isn't uh, really any argument uh, about these. The, the angel would not allow Smith to take the plates until he, by the way, the white toad is an absurdity. If Moroni traveled the distance in uh, mortal life, that would also be an absurdity. Uh, so folks, you probably already uh, have at least taken three drinks of whatever it is you've got. Oh, that's right. There's a game going. That's right. But uh, you know, the thing that made it easier for Mar Moroni was that given his age of at least 71, he could use all the handicapped parking spots along the way. Yeah. So he could stop a whole bunch of times. He could put the tag up uh, on his mirror of his car and, and take it. <laughs> One other thing that occurred to me when you said, do you have anything? And actually I did have something, but I said no anyway. Okay. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. What Mark Hoffman did 
was he took a story that he knew and the historians, the deep historians, the Dan Vogel historians, the Brit Metcalf historians knew, right? And then did a variation of it to give it verisimilitude. But he changed it. He didn't say a toad. He changed it to a white salamander. Why? So it wouldn't look like he was copying from this. Correct? Right. We all get that. However, when it comes to the apologist and Joseph Smith cribbing from the Bible or other sources, what they say is, oh, no, look, it's not exactly word for word the same. He didn't copy it exactly, and therefore, he's not borrowing from that source. In other words, Joseph Smith is using the same me uh, mechanism as Mark Hoffman if Joseph Smith's a fraud, and yeah. one the church fell for, and the other they say that that's, that's an obvious reason why this is not a copy. Yeah, it's an inconsistent argument I think the apologists make there. And this is a great example of it. I love it. So the, the 10 rules, the angel would not allow Smith to take the plates until he was able to obey certain commandments. Smith's writings say that the angel required at least the following commandments, that he have no thought of using the plates for monetary gain. We'll talk about that in a moment too. That Smith tell his father about the vision. Remember, he has the three visitations at night. Then on the fourth one, out in the meadow, he's told to go tell his dad, and he does, that he never show the plates to any unauthorized person, which doesn't matter because if any unauthorized person saw them, we were told that they would be struck dead. So that's also a contradiction. Smith's contemporaries, um, no unauthorized person, Smith's contemporaries who heard the story. I don't know what that's supposed to say. Oh, I know what this is. Smith's, con this is a separate line. This should have been down a mm -hmm. line. Smith's contemporaries who heard the story, both sympathetic and unsympathetic to Mormonism. So both apologist and critics generally agree that Smith mentioned the following additional commandments, that Smith take the plates and go directly away from the burial site without looking back, that the plates never directly touch the ground until safe at home, except when they're stored in that log, right? Um, safe at home. Well, they didn't touch the ground then. I guess not. Is there in a log? A dead log on the ground sort of is the ground, isn't it? Mm -mm. Nope. nope. Ground is ground. Log is log. Okay. So until safe at home in a locked chest, by the way, Joseph, you remember the story, Joseph was supposed to procure a, a chest that could lock. Mm. And then it ended up that they had to make do with a different chest. The one that Eldred G Smith ended up having that did not lock. And so Joseph Smith broke this rule. Anyway, if you go into church history, he ended up having to use a second chest because the first chest never was made or wasn't ready. Um, and that story involves Willard Chase as well. And uh, they ended up having to use a different box or chest, and that one did not lock. In addition to the above, some unsympathetic listeners who heard the story from Smith or his father add that Smith said the angel required him to wear black clothes to the site of the plates, to ride a black horse with a switchtail. By the way, what's a switchtail? I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Folks, somebody uh, smart in the comments there, please let us know. It does strike me, by the way, if you're going to get the plates at, I think, midnight, is the time he has to get them. And you know all of your treasure digging buddies are thinking you might actually have some real gold plates for the first time in your life. You actually found a treasure from a guardian spirit. You would want to put yourself in whatever wear clothes that would allow you to ride out of there as fast as hell and not be caught. So having a black horse mm. and a black outfit during the dark of night is your best chance to not have anybody stop you on the way. Uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. It'd be like Stallone in First Blood. There you go. But no, yeah, 
And he's in there in the leaves and the eyes open and uh, to call for the plates by a certain name to give thanks to God and that he bring a specific person with him. And it starts off as Alvin, but it ends up being three different people. And we're going to start with number 10 and then we'll talk about number one. Uh, any thoughts here before I move into that? No. Okay. So number 10 was this idea that he had to bring somebody with him. Uh, do you want to read this section as well, RFM? Yes, and there's a, a public notice which is recapitulated on the right side. And in the middle, you've got, uh, I guess it's Alvin Smith's uh, headstone in memory of Alvin, son of Joseph and Lucy Smith, who died November 19th, 1823. Yeah, and I just want to note the public notice is itself, the, the item on the right is, I forget who the scholar was, let's see here if it says, Dean Jesse. So Dean Jesse, BYU Studies, this is him explaining as a apologist, as a believer, that he agrees that uh, Alvin was supposed to be the first person that Joseph had to take with him to get the place. Now, remember, Moroni tells Joseph Smith that he has to bring his oldest brother with him or he cannot get the plates. We'll okay. talk. And actually, this isn't a recapitulation of the article. It's, yeah. a, it's a quote from a Dean Jesse yep. article. Okay, so after Moroni showed the vision of the good and evil of the world to Joseph. He instructed Joseph to purify his heart and come back to the same place a year later, 1824. He also told Joseph that he needed to bring the right person to retrieve the plates, and that person was his oldest brother, Alvin, going from the Willard Chase affidavit, I imagine, at least. Um, then it gives the, the citation for that. Um, however, just two months before their appointed date, Alvin came home with an intense pain in his stomach. And I talked to you about this earlier and said, it's really not two months before because Alvin dies two months after Joseph Smith's first visit to the Hill Camorra. So I'm not sure why it's written that way. I think it's not correct. So but, 10 months before would be accurate. Yes. And two months after Joseph's first visit. Yeah. Um, so Alvin came home with an intense pain in his stomach. After lying in bed for days, he called Joseph in before he died and told him to do anything in his power to obtain the plates and to follow every instruction that was given him. Yeah. So the way these necromancer, folk magic, magic circles, the way this these processes worked is that there were certain spells you had to say incantations. You had to draw the magic circle right. You had to cut a dog or a sheep's throat and sprinkle blood all over. And you had to follow these things to a T. And as Joseph Smith is claiming to be visiting uh, the Hill Camorra under the direction of a spirit named Moroni in order to get gold plates, the folks that are following him most closely at this time are all of his treasure digging buddies. And Joseph, if he says, I have to take Alvin with me, First off, it's absurd. Here's another absurdity. Take a drink. Moroni, God's angel, doesn't know that Alvin's going to die because he tells Joseph Smith to bring Alvin. And before Joseph Smith can actually follow that command, Alvin passes away. Joseph Smith, feeling the pressure of all of his treasure digging buddies, knows that he told all of them that he had to take Alvin with him. And there are certain incantations that if someone dies, the spell can still be carried out if you will take a part of their dead body. So when Alvin dies on November 19th, 1823, 
Then the following September of 1824, September 22nd, Joseph Smith goes to the hill and communicates with the angel Moroni. Comes back home. Rumors start to circulate that Joseph Smith had dug up his brother. Again, Joseph Smith Sr. is not going to tell you that. You're going to have to sort of put two and two together. But because it's only three days after Joseph goes to the hill in, in on the hill Camorra in Palmyra, New York, Joseph Smith Sr. puts a notice out in the newspaper and says, I know you guys are all saying that my, my oldest son's body has been disturbed, but we're going to prove it hasn't. And they dig up the body, they open up the casket, and it hasn't been tampered with. But when you recognize that three days before that notice, Joseph Smith is at the Hill Camorra trying to get the plates, and he had told everybody in town he had to take Alvin with him, you then realize that Joseph Smith Sr. is not speaking about some other stranger in town or the guy down the street digging up Alvin. The accusation is that Alvin's younger brother, Joseph, cut off a piece of his body to take it with him so that the incantation would still hold up. It's the reason why I've got a severed hand there on the screen. This will also connect Mormon discussion. We did an episode uh, titled something like Seer Stones, uh, Divining Rods, and Alvin's Hand. And so if you type in Mormon discussion, Alvin's Hand, you will get to that episode. And I go through all of the original treasure digging information, and I then explain this story. So if you want a deeper dive into all of this, you can go find that episode uh, about Joseph Smith's treasure digging, the seer stones that he used, and some of the interactions he had with folks like Lumen Walters, uh, Samuel Lawrence, who we'll mention here in a moment, Sally Chase, who he got his first seer stone from, who is Willard Chase's older sister. And so again, Joseph is running in circles with all of these men, and it's not Brigham Young and Hebrew C. Kimball that are his first associates. It's Lumen Walters, Sally Chase, Willard Chase, uh, and Samuel T. Lawrence, uh, and also uh, I forget what his, what his proper name is, but he goes by Obadiah Dogberry. Um, yeah, that guy. Yeah, the guy who uh, was copying the printing of the Book of Mormon in the Grandin print shop. He's actually of one of, yeah, he's also actually one, the Book of Pukey. He's also one of the treasure diggers who is working alongside Joseph Smith on lots of these treasure digs. And to know that, you can go read Dan Vogel's uh, article on the 17 treasure digs uh, in the Palmyra area. I think it's a, a dialogue article that, that Vogel wrote. Okay. So, and the timing of this, of course, is very, very suggestive that it is sworn to by Joseph Smith on, this is Joseph Smith Sr., by the way, on September 25th, three days after Joseph Smith's second visit to the Hill, 1824. And he says specifically that the rumors were that the body had been taken out and dissected. Yeah, and Vogel just told us it is Abner Cole, Obadiah yes. Donsbury. So thank you, Dan. God I, bless you, Dan Vogel. I'll be mentioning your name later. Yeah. Again. Uh, and Dan, if you want to share, if you know where that PDF is for the uh, long dialogue article you wrote on the treasure digs in Palmyra, I think folks would be uh, would deeply enjoy having the chance to read about how pervasive and widespread Joseph's treasure digging activities were and that of the rest of the Smith family. So I just want to know, this was just for a little chuckle. Uh, the Deseret News on September 22nd. So here we have the 190 year anniversary of 2017. Yep. The Deseret News says it was the commemorating the angelic handoff of Mormon golden plates to Joseph Smith 190 years ago today. 
And if they knew their church history as well as we do, they probably would have chose a different wording for that because it sort of does connect to Alvin's hand being off, uh, which Joseph Smith seemed to intimate he needed to take a piece of Alvin uh, with him to carry out the spell. By the way, to make it clear for anybody who hasn't watched that prior episode, Mm -hmm. the affidavit from Joseph Smith Sr. says he took a bunch of notables from the the city or the county. They went to the, the grave. They disinterred Alvin to put these rumors to rest. And indeed, he had been undisturbed is the nature of this affidavit. Yeah, so Joseph had not done anything to the body. It was others in the area who were rumoring that Joseph, to keep the spell, would have had to have done so. Yeah. Excellent. So again, uh, sort of some craziness there if you want to take a sip, but not necessarily an absurdity, just kind of a crazy story in church history. Now we're going to turn to Mormonism Unveiled Again. This is the book by Eber D. Howe, uh, where he sends uh, Philastus Hurlbut out to collect affidavits. And um, I just want to note here, this is the idea that the angel Moroni is imposing that Joseph Smith bring Alvin with him. But then Alvin dies, seemingly showing that Moroni had no clue what was going to happen in the future. Uh, I would expect Dan Hardy's going to make a mention that we don't believe in predestination or for predestination, but for ordination. But And also to be clear, it is not Moroni at this point. There's no mention of Moroni in contemporaneous recordings or retellings because it's just the angel or the messenger or the spirit. Yeah, and the early efforts by Joseph Smith seem to carry the language or articulation of the early treasure digging sort of vernacular and would have uh, not really been sort of like the true and living church. We're going to restore the church. We're going to start a church. We have priesthood. None of that stuff's going on at the time. It is, there's a guardian spirit with, with gold plates and he's trying to get the treasure um, out of the hill. So good point. Uh, Joseph went one year from that day to demand the book and the spirit inquired for his brother. And he said, Joseph, he said he was dead. So Moroni, even after Alvin's death, doesn't know that Alvin's died. That to me, if God sends angels who don't know who's living and who's dead, then I'd say we're all fucked. You know, I think like we're all screwed. Um, sorry, we're all screwed. Um, because there's this is absurd. You haven't you have the angel Moroni not knowing that Alvin has passed away yet. Um and he said that he was dead. The spirit then commanded him to come again in just one year and bring a man with him, a man. On asking who might be the man, he was answered that he would know him when he saw him. Joseph believed that one Samuel T. Lawrence was the man alluded to by the spirit and went with him to the singular looking hill in Manchester and showed him where the treasure was. So Joseph trusts Samuel T. Lawrence. He gets confirmation that Samuel T. Lawrence is the man that uh, Moroni is talking about. And he takes Samuel T. Lawrence to the very spot on the hill where the treasure is. But then he suddenly doesn't trust Samuel T. Lawrence anymore. And he says, not long after this, Joseph altered his mind and said that Lawrence was not the right man, nor had he told him the right place. So Joseph goes, no, I was just kidding. That's not the right spot. I don't trust you anymore. I was just playing around. I took you to a different spot on the hill. You shouldn't even try to dig there. That's not where the plates are. They're in a different place. Doesn't it's this probably happen? pretty safe in saying that. Totally. 
But doesn't this sound like a person who's making it up as they go? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He trusts him implicitly. This is the guy that it turns out to not be the right guy because he doesn't trust him. Whatever happens, there's a breach in the relationship. And now the angel doesn't tell him. It's got to be a story crafted to make it so that Joseph Smith could be in this position. The angel doesn't say his name. We already had that problem with Alvin. We're not going to do that again. So we're not going to do the name of the guy. Just You'll know him when you see him because, yeah. you know, names are beyond the angel unless it's Alvin. So it has to be ambiguous enough. And Joseph Smith doesn't say, oh, that's the guy I knew. He says, I think he's the guy. Then he's not the guy. And so the angel's off the hook. Except that the angel tells Joseph it's going to be a man. And then it turns out to not even be ambiguous enough because then Joseph has to turn to Emma Smith, his uh, the girl he has a, a fond love for. And finally, he has somebody he can trust enough to take. So Joseph Smith told others that after his first unsuccessful attempt to obtain the plates, the angel guarding them required him to bring the right person in order to succeed in the future. He only succeeded in obtaining the plates when he brought the right person, his new wife, Emma, who's not a man. According to Willard Chase, Joseph Smith told him that on the 22nd of September, 1827, he arose early in the morning and took one horse wagon of someone that had stayed overnight at their house. And I remember the story. Joseph Knight, I think. Yes. And without leave or license, together with his wife, repaired to the hill which contained the book, he left his wife in the wagon by the road and went alone to the hill where he retrieved the golden plates. And then one more spot, according to Willard Chase, on Joseph Smith's second annual attempt to obtain the golden plates, the spirit commanded him to come again in just one year and bring the man with him. Smith would know him when he saw him. Smith believed that man be Samuel Lawrence. That might be from the same thing as there on the left. Mm -hmm. Went with him to the singular licking hill. I just want to know, Moroni says, bring Alvin. Alvin dies. Joseph goes to the hill and Alvin, and the Moroni goes, hey, whoa, 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 slow down there, buddy. Where's Alvin? Where's Alvin? I told you to bring Alvin. Yeah, Joseph goes, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, but he's dead. And the angel's like, oh, well, all right, well, then you can bring a different guy, but I won't name him. Like you pointed out, that helps the story a little bit. You can bring a different guy. You'll know him when you see him. He knows that Samuel Lawrence, Samuel Lawrence loses his trust. He now goes, and it's not even a man now. It's got to be Emma Smith that he brings and finally, he's allowed to get the plates. This is ridiculous. So if you want to take another drink, folks, you can. This story absolutely has all the makings of somebody making it up as they go. Yes, I picture the, the angels being portrayed by Dave Seville and saying, Alvin. I don't know. What's that from? The chipmunks. The chipmunks. Oh, yeah, yeah. You should have done You should have like sucked in a little helium first before that. Oh, well, this is the, the grown-up guy who's sort of their custodian, Dave Seville. Oh, yeah, yeah. He does the voices. Yep. Okay, yeah. Okay, I know what we're talking about now. All right. Uh, the, guy, the, 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 uh, the guy who takes care of the three of them. Yes, I like to think that between the three of us, I'm Alvin. Great. You, Maven, you get to pick if you want to be Simon or Theodore. It's up to you. You're kind of uh, like Dave Seville, Bill. What's, oh, okay. I'll, I'll be Dave Seville. Engage in your unsuccessful effort to restrain our enthusiasm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I just want to note here, we run into a problem in church history where the original assumption, and we'll figure out why, because the, the, the apologists never want to tell you this, by the way, which is that Moroni on numerous occasions imposes that these are gold plates, not gold in color, because we'll get to that, gold in material. 
But the apologists know that that presents a major problem that's been acknowledged throughout church history, which is if the gold plates were gold, anything near solid gold, they would weigh somewhere in the range, I think, of like 150 to 200 pounds. They would be impossible, literally impossible for a man to carry, um, to haul any sort of distance, maybe to pick up and set back down, but not to haul around. So the apologists come in and go, Oh, the early, the early witnesses, they just said it had the appearance of gold, which is true if you selectively pick certain statements from the eight witnesses or maybe the three, but for sure the eight witnesses. And you can then say, well, it's just golden in color, and we'll get to how they solve that. But I just want to set this part of the conversation up by notifying the audience that it is Moroni who insist that these are plates of gold. And so now I'm going to go just a note too. The church also says such in one of its Mormon ad things here that it used to use all the time in the new era for the youth. It says worth more than its weight in gold. Treasure the book of Mormon. It is priceless. They are saying right there, this is gold material. We know that it has a gold color to it. This is based on the statements of witnesses, the image on the right is what I think is the closest approximation of what the gold plates would have looked like. One third to half of the plates were unsealed. Half to two thirds were sealed. Often you see in the church pictures, it's a band that's put around them, but the statements about it said it was encapsulated in a material and that the rings were large rings in the shape of letter D. So this image of the plates to me is the closest approximation of them. I just want to note history of the church, Joseph Smith's history. This is the 1838 account of the first vision, which was, we'll get to this later rewritten and more things added to it. This is Joseph Smith approving this version of the story. Verse 34, he said there was a book deposited written upon gold plates. Now, maybe that means color but it doesn't seem like that would be the most obvious interpretation of what's being said there. Right. You came up with something that Moroni said that would indicate that it really was gold. Gold plates. And it gets worse. The 1832 account of the first vision. And I just want to note it's there uh, on the page. You can go, we'll link when we put this out tomorrow in podcast form. What is your quest to seek the plates? What is your favorite color? Gold. Yeah, it's just silly, isn't it? No, blue. Um, We'll link all of these resources in the show notes. You can double check us if you'd like to. I don't think we're ever dishonest on this kind of stuff. Um, I want to note to you who's telling you the full story and who isn't. And We're We're as dishonest as we know how to be. We're as dishonest as we know how to be. In the same way. Yes, I'm with you. Um, so I moved that over to this page, but I've also included another section from that same 1832 account. Would you read both of these? Just the parts that are highlighted or all of them? Read the whole thing. Okay. 1832 first vision account. And it's also has Moroni in it. When I was 17 years of age, I called upon again upon the Lord and he showed unto me a heavenly vision for behold, an angel of the Lord came and stood before me and it was by night. And he called me by name and he said, the Lord had forgiven me my sins. And he revealed unto me that in the town of Manchester, Ontario County, New York, there were there was plates of gold upon which there was engravings, which was engraven by Maroni and his fathers, 
the servants of the living God. I pronounced it differently because it's spelled M-A-R-O-N-I there. Yes. I want to, before you read the other one, when he says plates of gold, I don't think that can be understood as color at all. Plates of gold indicates material, not color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then we get another testament that it had to have been gold in material as well in what he's told about what he what his motivations need to be in order to carry out this uh, endeavor. And obviously the English is not immaculate here, but in English we would usually use the word golden to describe a color. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is further on in the same account though, right? Mm-hmm. 1832 count. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord, obviously the angel to Joseph. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord, which I gave unto you. Therefore, you cannot now obtain them for the time is not yet fulfilled. Therefore, thou wast left unto temptation that thou mightest be made acquainted of with acquainted of with the power of the adversary. Therefore, repent and call on the Lord. Thou shalt be forgiven. And in his own due time, thou shalt obtain them for now. I had been for now. I had been tempted of the adversary and sought the plates to obtain riches. That's Joseph Smith in his own hand, writing about this experience, the very first encounter with the angel on the hill Cumorah, and kept not the commandment that I should have an eye single to the glory of God. Therefore, I was chastened and sought diligently to obtain the plates. But the angel is telling him, you cannot seek the plates to obtain riches. Which means the plates have to be made of a material that would be reasonably easy for Joseph Smith to get financial gain from selling which means it can't just be 2% gold or 1% and he's got to go through some heavy laden process to 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 get that gold out of the rest of the alloy which we'll get into some of this in a moment this has to be to some significant amount of gold that there could be riches obtained and this also runs counter to the only idea being that these would be golden in color um then we have the 1838 account i want to stop here for just a moment and note another item in church history. We often hear there's a criticism in church history that Joseph Smith is calling the angel or spirit, not only Moroni in several places, but also in several places, names him Nephi. And I want to note where that comes from. It would, it be is, more fair, would it be more fair to say that there's one place? Well, one, although we found where Joseph Smith, where Joseph Smith names the angel Nephi, apparently. Yes, although the provenance... I'm trying to figure out how the best way to explain it. If you want to, you're welcome to try. I'm trying to well, the basic out. thing that you did was you went back and you, you learned all the stuff about the provenance of this. And the fact is, apparently, that Joseph Smith was not involved in the writing of that part of the record. Yeah, the original draft one of the 1838, sometimes called the 1839 account of Joseph Smith's history, was scribed by uh, Sidney Rigdon and George Robinson. And then... That draft one is no longer available. It's gone. And at some later point, I still think during Joseph Smith's lifetime, but but later than that first draft, I think it's James Mulholland who then takes the first draft, which we no longer have, and takes other sources that are around him and creates draft number two. And in draft number two, Instead of saying the angel's name is Moroni, it says that the angel's name is Nephi. And you can see that on the right side of the image, the second from the top, and that his name was Nephi. And then Moroni is written above it. Somebody's correcting it. 
<clears throat> different handwriting. But, but not lining it through would suggest that it's sometime after the fact and they don't want to mar the original word. No. And you see the asterisk there to the right of it. But, and we'll get to this story uh, in a little bit, or we can explain it now too if you want to, because it, it, we're going to explain it in full pretty quickly after we make finish up this part about the gold. Um, okay, yeah, let's finish up the part about the gold and we can return to Mor Moroni slash Nephi. Yeah. So in this 1838 account is the same sort of thing that you just read in the 1832 account. So here we have another witness of it. So not just, not only Joseph Smith's history, um, but which also in a sense is the 1838 account, but you have the 1832 account and then the 1838 account. Uh, 1838, he called me by name and said unto me that he, he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me and that his name was Nephi, that God had a work for me to do and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. He said there was a book deposited written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of the continent and the source from whence they sprang. Then it continues, but, that, but what was my surprise when again I beheld the same messenger at my bedside and heard him rehearse or repeat over again to me, the same things as before and added a caution to me telling me that Satan would try to tempt me in consequence of the indigent circumstances of my father's family to get the plates for the purpose of getting rich, not just making a little bit of money, getting rich. How much of these plates would need to be constituted of gold for Moroni to be warning Joseph Smith that he needs to be very careful that his motivations are not to get the plates for the purpose of getting rich. This he forbade me, saying that I must have no other object in view in getting the plates but to glorify God and must not be influenced by any other motive but that of building his kingdom. Otherwise, I could not get them. And I just want to note, too, all of the early treasure digging stories, Joseph Smith's using a seer stone, uh, telling people that there is gold or silver buried under the ground, Spanish silver mines, uh, Native American guardian spirits, it's always about gold. It's always been about gold, and it's about gold here too. And so when the apologists do the distraction and ignore all of these accounts and tell you that there are some witnesses who said that it had the appearance of gold, they're bullshitting you. They don't want to tell you the full story because it contradicts a faithful narrative. And what did Boy K. Packer say about full narratives that don't build faith? Oh, we shouldn't talk about those. We shouldn't talk about those. No, I think it's clear that every Pew Mormon, every TBM who hasn't gone crazy in apologetics understands what Joseph Smith seems to have obviously understood, which is that the plates that he was describing were made of solid gold. Yeah. Yeah. And so you had found an article, I think this is yeah, Meridian Magazine, and um, I'm going to make my screen full screen, but if you can read that, I'd love for you to. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Because the thing is this, is that that creates a problem. When you start investigating this, when you take it literally, like the, the map makers, right? When you take these things literally, it creates problems. And one of the main problems with it being solid gold is number one, weight, and number two, the softness. Because it needs to be an alloy. And it needs to be, an, in order for it to be hard enough to maintain its shape, and the second is it needs a much lighter alloy in order for it to be light enough for a person to heft. Okay, 
And so enter Tumbaga, stage left. Yeah. So they've got the answer to this now. Some considerations lend strength to this idea. Okay, those who lifted the plates estimated their weight to be about 40 to 60 pounds. That means people who alleged to have hefted the plates. Plates of that size made of pure gold, however, would have weighed even more. Now, if they were made of tin, they might have been, I don't know, 40 to 60 pounds, but regardless. Putnam. No, wait a second. I'm sorry. Made of gold, however. Would, okay. Plates of that size made of pure gold, however, would have weighed even more. If made of Tumbaga, Putnam estimated the plates could have weighed about 53 Pounds and Tumbaga is an alloy with gold that has been found, I believe, in Central America. So this is a win-win, right? We get to establish Central America as the location of Nephite uh, civilization, and we get to get rid of these problems that the Book of Mormon plates being made out of pure gold create. And it says more recently, let me bring this over here. Excuse me. I didn't know it was going to be this small. More recent work by geologist and engineer Jerry Grover suggests a weight range of between 53 to 58 pounds. Grover also, by the way, that's heavy. Okay? That's heavy. Grover also determined that the plates must have been approximately 90% copper, 8% gold, and 2% silver. You see how science verifies the Book of Mormon just by changing everything about it in order to favor the apologists? Otherwise, they, do, they would have weighed too much. See, this solves the problem. It was an alloy. It was Tumbaga. It wasn't solid gold. What about the color of Tumbaga? Well, since we've already decided that Tumbaga is going to be our escape hatch on the problems with the plates, what about the color of Tumbaga? Eyewitnesses describe the plates as being golden, see, or having the appearance of gold. And the appearance of gold, I think, is directly from the uh, testimony of the eight witnesses. William Smith, however, did say that the plates consisted of a mixture of gold and copper. Well, okay, right. I have no idea where he said that. While the alloy was naturally a reddish color, it was commonly made to look golden by leaching out the copper on the surface. So I just want to note here, you and I both know from the Book of Mormon how difficult Nephi and Mormon and Moroni tell us it was to inscribe on the plates. But now Mormon, Nephi, Moroni added another process in because they didn't like the plates having their natural reddish color. So they would have added a chemical process to take the reddish color out, giving it a golden hue because they needed the plates to have a golden color because they'd be prettier, of course. Of course. And just like you mentioned, a certain process, chemical process to make tin plates look gold. Folks, not, not tonight, but in the past yeah. you have. You would want to, folks, if you're interested, refer to uh, Mormon Discussions episode on the gold plates. It was performed and, and carried out at Sunstone. We actually took tin and copper and we did some chemical processes during the Sunstone session and turned it into a golden color. And one of the suggestions is that Joseph Smith actually did have the tools. His dad ran a cooper shop. Uh, they worked with metals also uh, Lumen Walters was an alchemist. And so Joseph Smith has room in his history to have learned the chemical processes to make tin or copper take on a golden color. And hence, he could have used some other material besides gold and ended up with manufactured modern replicas of plates that would have been golden in color. But what I want to point out, RFM, is 
and I, I know I'm repeating myself, but I think it's a big deal for this to work out. The apologists are agreeing that if it's 95%, 90, actually 90, whatever percent other materials, and it's just a small portion of gold in order to get the weight that you need, the material actually takes on a reddish color. So for it to now be a faithful story, you have to have the ancient authors of the Book of Mormon entering into a new process because it's important to them to not have reddish colored plates. Somehow that, that can't be. They have to go through the effort of making the plates golden in color because that's important to the story. And when we know how much work went into manufacturing these plates, adding another process simply to change the color of them doesn't make any damn sense at all. Mm -mm, I, I can't hear you, RFM. I was once again typing furiously and searching something because Doug Vincent had mentioned, I think he's correct, that unfortunately the good people at Meridian Magazine and the good people at, you know, Book of Mormon Central and all the apologists, they'll talk about Tumbaga all day long as if Tumbaga was actually made during Book of Mormon times. And I think that it was probably made after Book of Mormon times. It ending in 421 CE with a bang and probably didn't start phase one of Mexican West Mexican metallurgy didn't start until 600 CE. I would also um, want to note that Tumbaga doesn't have a set formula of how much of each metal should be there. And it ranged anywhere from 5% gold up to 95% gold, but the apologists already have their conclusion. And so then they work back the math backwards and essentially come up with the formula that will allow the plates to be the weight that everyone claimed them to be. But that sort of is also the Carrie Molstein method. It's still too heavy. Can you imagine lugging two 30 pound dumbbells around? We had Spencer Lake. If anybody out there knows Spencer, Spencer's a big guy, strong guy. He was at my Sunstone session. We had a item of that weight, 55 pounds for him to carry. And he carried it. But he came back into the room after going like 25 foot. And he's like, there's no way in hell I could carry this across the woods and outrun people and fight people off. And no way. That's why you need to have it in a sack that won't tear under the strain. Yeah. Maven, hi, how are you doing? And do you have hi. a definition for switchback tail? Um, oh. Well, we had three. <laughs> and I don't know uh, which one. So, I, yeah, I can do that. I did just want to say, I, Tumbaga would be, I mean, gold would have to be I guess found and and start to have been worked with first, right? And to and Tumbaga is something that they they started doing after in order to be able to use the gold, right? I, gold working didn't start until ab about 800 AD, so it's a little bit after Moroni's time anyway in the first mm. place. But then, yeah, just like I mean, there's a progression. So I, I think if I'm understanding right, Tumbaga is something that would be that would naturally come after gold started to be used, you know, as an improvement on the process of, of being able to use it. Hmm. Um, let me see if I can go back right. to and probably done. Go ahead and check it out. I was just going to add them probably done for the same reason that gold is typically not 24 carat. It's something less than that 20 carat or 14 or something that can hold its shape. Right. It's so soft. Um, so we had one person who say a switch tail is a fake tail like a, a hair extension. 
Um, someone else said it was, uh, they thought it was just a long, well, I guess let me put that up. So that was, this was the first one. Like you switch it um, out. Yeah. So Teresa said that she thought it was just a long natural tail compared to one where the horse's tail was cut short. And then I don't know if this one was like a joke or not, or it could be, I think related to, um, I don't know, like maybe superstition, a, a horse with a switch tail can balance its body in an extreme maneuver. And so, but that seems a bit far-fetched. I, It wouldn't surprise me, I guess, if there were beliefs about certain types of horses that were better for something supernatural like this. So I- But may just be talking thought, about uh, switching it to one side when it's going to the other in some kind of maneuver to balance it in just a purely naturalistic way. I don't yeah. know. I will note I that if it is a fake tail, if you're placing a fake tail on the horse of some sort, it's another way to get away from people. If you were running through the woods on, or if you're riding through the woods on a horse and someone tried to grab the tail of the horse, it would come off. And you'd be <laughs> like the lizard <laughs> that dropped their tail. <laughs> <laughs> Which sort of goes along with the dark clothes and the dark horse to begin with. So anyway, thank you yep. very much. All right, so oops. Bill, we're at one seventeen. We got to pick this up. Yeah, we're we're running out of time here. LDS Apostle John Widstow said, "If the plates, if the gold were pure, the plates would weigh two hundred pounds, which would be heavy, which would be a heavy weight for a man to carry, even though he were of the athletic type of Joseph Smith." In other words, he doesn't want to say it directly, but it would be impossible um, right. for a man to, to to carry them and go about. He might be able to pick them up and set them down, but he's not going anywhere with them. I'll move on here. Um, let me turn the time over to you. This is quite an interesting uh, part of the, we talked about Nephi earlier. Here's a second reference. And I'll let you tell this story. All right. This is a famous story about David Whitner's, David Whitmer's mother, Mary Whitmer. But, and there's a number of different places where we read this account. And this account has to do with her being really upset because she has to milk the cows. By the way, the translation of the Book of Mormon has now been transferred over to the Whitmer residence as of this time. Joseph Smith's there, Oliver Cowdery's there, other people are there, but the work's falling on her to not only take care of stuff that other people aren't taking care of, but also to take care of everybody who are busy translating. So she's got a lot on her plate. But this particular account comes from not her son, but her grandson, John C. Whitmer, who himself, I believe, was the son of John Whitmer, the first church historian, okay? So it's 1888, and John C. Whitmer has heard his grandmother, Mary, tell this story many times. The interesting part about this, for my purposes, is what his grandmother, Mary Whitmer, who claimed to have this encounter with the angel, the messenger of the plates, didn't call him Moroni. Here's what it says. 1888, he's being interviewed. And it says, I have heard my grandmother say on several occasions that she was shown the plates of the Book of Mormon by a holy angel whom she always called Brother Nephi. And that's the second data point. And yeah. it's interesting to me because it actually maybe even be a third data point because embedded in this are two things. So we have the person who definitely was called Moroni later on, identified as Nephi in the 1838 uh, account of the appearance of the angel to Joseph Smith. And then in 1888, we have the grandson of Mary Whitmer telling the same story that we've heard before, but adding the detail that grandma always called the angel Brother Nephi. 
So he didn't just hear her say it once. He heard her say it multiple times, and it's always Brother Nephi. The two data points embedded in here are Mary herself, whose story he's recapitulating, and John C. Whitmer in 1888, who apparently sees nothing wrong with identifying the angel who appeared to his grandmother as Nephi. So I think he's in Richmond, Missouri, so he probably stayed there with David, some other members of the family. So he's not a member of the, the Brighamite uh, sect of the church. I don't know exactly what his beliefs were. I'm going to um, presume just for the moment that his beliefs were similar to his uncle David's, and that is that the Book of Mormon was divine. It was brought forth by God, and it was translated by the gift and power of God, and it is true, and all the stories associated with it coming forth are true. It's just that Joseph Smith fell off the um, the true prophet wagon several years later. So if John C. Whitmer feels the same way, then I think it indicates that he's got no problem with this angel being named Nephi either. And in fact, I looked up this quote, and I found it in several places on the internet. When you find it in any church source or apologetic source, there is always a parenthetical statement after Brother Nephi where it says, obviously, she was confused and must have meant Moroni because he was the custodian of the place. So you see, apologists looking at this have such a problem with it, they have to correct her, even though John C. Whitmer himself doesn't correct her at all. And in fact, Brigham Young had a, quite a response to this, didn't he, when it showed up during his presidency? Yeah, I was just pulling up the 1838 account so I could grab that note. Um, and wait a second. In 1888, John C. Whitmer. Okay, uh, Brigham Young's been dead now for 11 years as of the time this, because he died in 1877. So I don't know how this is going to factor in. This is live TV, folks, and we'll see what, what plays out here. Yeah, it, so we noted earlier, almost all of the early references in like the first phase of Joseph Smith's history, the, the prior to the publishing of the Book of Mormon and even maybe just after, there are almost all the references to the spirit or the angel are just that, spirit or angel. There are no names given. When So that document of the 1838 draft that shows Nephi, that is the first time in church history where it shows up that the angel is being named as Nephi, uh, allegedly with the approval of Joseph Smith in that draft history. Um, when you go to that 1838 account and click the footnote to the, the name Nephi, and RFM, you and I spent quite a bit of time this morning talking about this. Um, early sources, it says here, early sources, like we said earlier, early sources often did not name the angelic visitor. But sources naming Moroni include Oliver Cowdery's historical letter published in April 1835, Messenger and Advocate, and an expanded version of a circa August 1830 revelation published in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine of Covenants. I think we looked expanded that up. Expanded version, expanded version, Danger Will Robinson. Did you see yeah. that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. But I think that is what, section 50, verse 2, I think? I bet it was expanded to include the name Moroni. By the way, we didn't go into this part for tonight's show, because this if we had done this, it would have been an entire episode we would, on its own. Yeah, you and I would have to probably put a week's worth of research just to vet all of these sources and try to find the earliest uh, of this source and try to make sure it was the original source. 
and make sure there was nothing added. And as you and I both know, as well as the polygamy deniers, that Brigham Young and others in his day under his direction did alter uh, various documents in church history. Uh, so that is a true fact. And uh, it does make some of this sort of research difficult. So I hope maybe at some point we'll get back to this and make an episode on this alone, but I at least want to cover what the church is claiming. Um, the did you elder say Brigham Young did that? Brigham Young and those under his direction. Yes, he did. And in doing so, he was just following the example set for him by Joseph Smith. I just wanted to put that in there before it was made into a, a sound clip. Yes, Maven. So are we thinking that this um, like Brigham Young was aware of this story in particular? Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Bill. I, or, I, did I you want to, to say something? Yeah, please. Well, I just wanted to point out that I, I went over this just if, in folklore in general. There's usually a, a purpose. And out of all of the stories in, in random members' journals, I think there's a particular reason why this one has, I guess, survived or that Brigham Young would like it and, and it would continue to be propagated. I think the church actually made a little YouTube cartoon short about this uh if not the church then one of the church's affiliates and um it's it serves a really good purpose because overall uh the role of the women of the church is to work hard while the brethren uh you know do all the important stuff and and get all of the the work and the glory and, and have all the authority and so this is a this is an extremely useful story from brigham young's day all the way up till today now which is basically to say like we love you women you are special look mary got a special thing and you can too but really you don't need to um just know that you will be blessed like mary you can just use mary's example you don't actually need to get your own visitation from moroni um but this is just to show like look we appreciate you. God appreciates you doing all this behind the scenes work so that we don't have to um, carry our share and um, and be happy and smile while you do it because you would definitely will be blessed someday, even though it seems really, really, really sucky now. And, um, and I think what's interesting too, in one of the accounts, it says that Mary was so frustrated, she was at the point of turning them out, which would be good, setting up some healthy boundaries, standing up for herself, saying, okay, enough skipping rocks. You, you guys have just uh, my life is overburdened with your presence here and you've worn out. You're welcome. Thankfully, yeah. Moroni came just in time for that to say, nope, be grateful for this extra work. You'll be fine. So, mm. yeah, it's a very useful story. Love it. <laughs> yes, it is. You're right. <laughs> um, Sometimes she's referred to now as the 12th witness Yeah. to the Book of Mormon plates. Yeah. 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 I appreciate it. Thank you. Um. Again, I'm going to trust the church on this for a moment, which is always a bad idea, but I'm going to trust the church on this for a moment. And you and I researched this a little bit. We talked about it at length, kind of poking at some of the notes. What it seems, I'll try to give the, the Cliff Notes version. It may not be longer than their note, but early accounts don't mention an angel's name. There are multiple sources early in church history that seem to say Moroni. Yes. At least by 1835, definitely. It is in 1838 that the first mention of the angel is Nephi. Right, and it's, it's alone. It's not Joseph Smith's handwriting. Draft one is written by George Robinson and Sidney Rigdon. Draft two is written by James Mulholland, copying Sidney Rigdon and George Robinson's work, plus other sources. I know Vogel's uh, mentioning as well. It all it, And we have the second note here from uh, John C. Whitmer, who is a two generations removed from Mary Whitmer, 
and he's away from the church, at least geographically, it seems not that there couldn't be, you and I mentioned this, not that there couldn't be two parallel stories where Joseph had actually said both, but the most reasonable explanation for me, and I think for you, you can certainly chime in, is that the angel seems to be in most sources named Moroni. And I think the best explanation of Nephi suddenly appearing as the name is that somebody either misremembered or copied over incorrectly. That's what I thought very certainly when I thought the only mention of Nephi was in the 1838 uh, version of church history, which comes somewhat late and after many Moroni's. Yeah. Okay. But now that I see that John C. Whitmer talks about his grandmother talking about the angel that appeared to her to show her the place as her special witness and saying she always called him Brother Nephi. Now we've got at least one other data point, if not two, John C. and his grandmother. And now I could see that it could be possibly, room could be made for the idea. This doesn't start off as Moroni. It's not his name. It's an angel. It's a spirit. It comes to be known as Moroni. And possibly... Uh, there was room enough because of the development of this to have a different name being applied to this person simultaneously in different areas. And it wasn't seen to be such a big thing, but finally it ended up being Moroni and that was going to be Moroni ever after. And Nephi went to the side and just shows up as these anomalies in church history. And, and I don't think it's a, the critics often tout this one out as if it's clear cut. And I would say this is a much more, at, at, at best for the critic side of the argument, this is a complex matter. Um, at worst for the critic, this is a simple mistake that has been uh, enlarged, probably bigger than it should have been. Yeah. The other thing is that Nephi would be the other person who naturally would be the guardian of the plates because he's the person at the beginning of the record and Moroni is the person at the end. End of point. Maven? Yeah, so Dan Vogel says we've got a, a Nephi first mentioned in 1838. And no, I, I think, I thought, yeah, I thought you talked about this in um, another episode with us. It might be episode 94, Joseph Smith and the Occult. I think, Bill, you were gone for that one. But I, I feel like one of the times we've had Dan on, this came up and there, and there uh, Dan was I think the the idea of necromancy that the folk magic stuff was Joseph Smith was coming under fire for that, and so I, I don't remember the details, Dan Vogel. I'm sorry, but I do feel like this was discussed previously on a Mormonism Live, and I think it was episode 94 that the the switch might have been to avoid uh, the idea of necromancy. Uh, anyway, and just wanted um, to. Yeah. You're just wondering how necromancy is is any clearer with Nephi than with Moroni. Yeah, and, we, and maybe, you know, maybe at some point we pick this particular topic up, bring Dan on, and let's have a at-length conversation about this issue in particular. Because yeah. I, I actually think it would be quite enjoyable to sort of come to a conclusion at the end and let's get some sort of finality on how strong this critical argument really is. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, one would I, think I, that Joseph Smith would have reviewed it at some point. Yeah. I do want to note to you, I, I, I thought of this as we were having the conversation about this point this morning. If, you, if the church isn't true, if the Book of Mormon isn't an ancient text, then Joseph Smith, yes, Nephi would have been a character, the son of Lehi, but Nephi would not have been 
the an author of any of the books in the Book of Mormon. In other words, if the 116 pages are translated and not lost, then there is no need for the books of Nephi. Hence, Nephi would never have been translated. So you would go right from the book of Lehi into the parts that come after the book of books of Nephi, first and second Nephi. And what I'm simply suggesting is that until the 116 pages are lost, it would make zero sense for the name Nephi to be mentioned anyway. And it only makes sense that once the 116 pages are lost, Nephi becomes a primary author. And the first author, you pointed this out, you said it a moment ago, the, the two authors that make the most sense to be the angel speaking to Joseph Smith would be the first author of the Book of Mormon, Nephi, or the last author of the Book of Mormon, Moroni. Um, anyway, I, I just think there needs to be some thought about why Nephi may not have been mentioned early on if, in fact, there's truth to, the, to Nephi being used, because we shouldn't expect uh, Nephi to be in the mind of Joseph Smith as a main character until he loses the 116 pages. Or at least as the 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 beginning character, the starting yeah. author of the book. Yes. Correct. He would just be a secondary figure who's the son of Lehi. Probably. Yeah. We'll so, ask and, Don Bradley. We, yeah, we'll have to have Don on. All right. Um, we can move on from this story. Then you Because yeah, we got to get to the monkey in the box. We don't want to leave out the monkey in the box. First, we have the shed story. So I'll let you tell this one as well. And we have Thad somebody. I'm sorry, I was going to read it. It was so wonderful. It was a nice, uh, what do you call those super chats? Yes. Bad Jefferson, Bill RFM, and especially Maven. Y'all are awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Thad. Appreciate it. Now, this next story, okay, this is this is part and parcel of the Mary Whitmer story. Because there's one account, a bunch of accounts of her telling the story, right? But there's one account here, which has a different aspect to it, a different fact scenario to it, okay? And it has to do with the location and what happened leading up to her encountering, encountering this messenger with the plates mm -hmm. to show her. And I want to say that I remembered this story, but I remembered it kind of off. And I just want to ever, let everybody know, I am so blessed, if I may use that term, to be able to pick up the phone and call Brent Metcalf yesterday when I'm trying to remember, I can't find the story. I can't find it anywhere on the internet. I'm using all these different search terms, right? About the shed and outhouse or chicken coop or whatever it was. And I call, and uh, Brent Metcalf was very helpful. I called uh, Dan Vogel. He picked up the phone and uh, he actually was able to find the source in his book, Early Mormon Documents, where the story is contained. Okay, so this is the story, regardless of how I remembered it originally. And we need the the um, the page right before this to start with. This is an interview with Edward Stevenson. He's interviewing David Whitmer. So this is the words of David Whitmer. It's 1877. Is, Not that one. Right, so give me a second. I can pull yeah. this up really quick. It's I am. I thought I had grabbed the entire document, but I didn't. So give me a second here. It's okay, because what we find out is that leading up to. Mary Whitmer saying that she saw this individual and showed her the plates. We have an account of, and this is from David Whitmer, telling the story about how he and Joseph, and I think Oliver was there, that he'd gone down to Harmony to pick up Joseph and company and bring them north, I believe it is, 
up to New York and to the Whitmer household where the balance of the, um, the Book of Mormon translation would take place. And he tells a story about how, uh, you know, they met the old man on the road, that story. And they say, you know, it's a really hot day and he's wiping his face and, hi, how you doing? Yeah, we're doing fine. And he's saying he's going to Kimura. You know, where are you going, old man? Well, I'm going to Kimura. By the way, he has a knapsack. Always has the knapsack, which has something big and square and bulging in it. And uh, then all of a sudden he disappears. He vanishes from sight. And they feel strangely about it. And Joseph Smith, I think, inquires of the Lord and receives the revelation that that was no old man. That was Moroni. Okay? And this happens right before, and the day before, I think, the episode with Mary Whitmer. Okay, so we got it now? So this is Sunday, December 23rd, Joseph Smith's birthday, 1877. We have these individuals, including Stevenson, going to, everybody's going to David Whitmer. He's the last surviving witness to find out what he has to say. Paid our last visit to David Whitmer. Saw one of the Nephites. I wish to mention an item of conversation with David Whitmer in regard to seeing one of the Nephites. Zina Young desired me to ask about it. David said, Oliver Cowdery and the prophet and I were riding in a wagon and an aged old and an aged man about five feet, 10 inches tall, heavy set and on his back, an old fashioned army knapsack strapped over his shoulders and something square in it. And he walked alongside of the wagon and wiped the sweat off his face, smiling very pleasant, smiling very pleasant. David asked him to ride and he replied, I am going across to the hill Camorra. Soon after they passed, they felt strangely and stopped, but could see nothing of him. All around was clear. And they asked the Lord about it, by which I think they probably mean Joseph Smith asked the Lord about it. He said that the prophet looked as white as a sheet and said that it was one of the Nephites. Yeah, and I just... Um... Um, this is. I thought this was the same thing. I, I think want... maybe it is, and I apologize if I made you go looking for it because it does look like it starts to pay our last visit all together. Okay, that's what you did right here. The uh, prophet looked as white as a sheet and said that it was one page seventeen of the Nephites. Right. So it is Joseph Smith, the prophet, who's inquiring of the Lord and getting the answers as you would expect. And the prophet says he's white as a sheet. Says it's one of the Nephites, and. Um, so the okay, one of the Nephites, and that he had the plates on arriving at home. So now they've gotten to David Whitmer's house. On arriving at home, they were impressed. That means David and Oliver and Joseph. They were impressed that the same person was under the shed. Let me repeat that. The same five foot ten inch person. The aged man they saw on the road who vanished, who was on his way to Camorra, they were impressed with the feeling that that you same... should be drinking right now. The same... <laughs> Ooh. I don't... Okay. Sorry. I think I just peed myself a little. That was scary. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So anyway, it's like the ring. And I think that's the right movie. But regardless, that the same guy's under the shed. Now, how that could be, we'll talk about in a second. Okay, so they're okay. So they think he's they're impressed that the same person was under the shed. And again, they were informed. And when I hear him say again, they were informed, I understand the again to mean in the same way as before, which would be Joseph Smith obtaining the mind and will of the Lord through prayer and by way of revelation. They were informed that it was so. 
The guy is under the shed. There's a guy under the shed. Yeah. And so, uh, but they don't see him. They just get the feeling he's under there. All right. So, so he's under the shed and uh, they saw, they saw where he had been. Okay. They don't see him. He's under the shed. They saw where he had been. And the next morning, David's mother, Mary Musselman Whitmer, saw the person at the shed. And now we go into the story. And he took the plates from a box and showed them to her. She said that they were fastened with rings. Thus, there's a picture of the D-shaped ring. He turned the leaves over. This was a satisfaction to her. So the way that Dan Vogel has understood this, and I think that I, I got the completed vision from Dan Vogel, and so I'm glad he was able to figure out what I was referring to, is that there, this man who has vanished on the road is under the shed. Well, a man is not going to fit under a shed. Okay, that's the first thing. Only something very small will fit under a shed, a small object or a small animal, like, I don't know, a toad will fit under the shed. And yet when Mary comes out in the morning, he's come out from under the shed and transformed into the man again. And remember, the story about the toad is the toad is there in the hole, and then he transfigures himself into a man. And Dan Vogel sees the same thing being described here potentially, and likely even, and I tend to agree with him. There's a toad that's under the shed. And then the next morning he comes out as the man shows the plates to Mary, and this was a great satisfaction to her. Yeah, I just want to note, you and I talked about this, and we're talking the 1830s. So in the top left-hand corner is Joseph Smith, the Joseph Smith home in Palmyra, New York. This was the log cabin that got built on the property before they could build the bigger house years later after Alvin had died. The bottom left-hand corner is the Whitmer home. About the same size, maybe a little bigger, but about the same size. If that's your house, you're not building a very big shed. So on the right-hand side, this is the shed or the Cooper shop on the Joseph Smith farm property. This would give us sort of an idea of what a shed back then might look like. Well, it's not going to be on stilts, okay? Because if it were on stilts, number one, it wouldn't be. And number two, if it were and there were a guy under there, you could see him. Yeah, and they don't apparently see the guy. They have to be told by Joseph Smith that they have to trust that he's there. Mm -hmm. And they saw the place where he had been. And it doesn't say anything more about that or what size it was. But if you look at this Cooper shed, which you got the great picture of from the Joseph Smith property, once again, this is on the Whitmer property, not the Joseph Smith property. This is for illustrative purposes only. A guy's not going to be able to crawl under that, but a small animal or amphibian could. Right. And so there is, by the way, RFM, we kind of cheated it and saw it early, but there actually is a historical photo of this event taking place. And here is is Moroni crawling out from under the shed. Uh, Mm -hmm. Folks, I'm just joking. But to note to your point, this would be an impossibility. There's no way a grown adult man is climbing out from under a rudimentary shed from the 1800s built by the same people who built these log cabin homes. You can't imagine some profound shed off the ground when these houses aren't off the ground. That makes zero sense. Whatever was under the the shed 
it certainly was not a five foot ten human being. No, and I love that picture because if you look at his right hand, it, lo it looks like it's in the middle of going from being a frog hand to a human hand. There is something going on there. So there's another absurdity. At this point, you should have you should be on your sixth or seventh drink by now. And we're just on Moroni. The church can be shown to be demonstrably absurd or false simply on the Moroni story alone. Um, you noted Mary Whitner's uh, Moroni's visit to Mary Whitmer. That follows what we just read. So while the church loves to tout the story out of Mary Whitmer having this visitation with Moroni, and it'll make its way every so often into the church periodicals, notice what story does not make it into the church periodicals. And it's the preceding story about Moroni being under the shed. They don't want you to know that one. They only want you to know this part of the tale. And you must ask yourself why that would be. Moroni did it with the gold plates no. under the shed. Not all truth is useful, huh? Yep. But the Mary story is useful. So there we go. So you get that one. Yep. All right. So there's that. We don't need to go into detail about it. There is an artistic depiction. By the way, notice the shed is right there. There's the shed. There's a cow in it. He can't crawl out from under that. Well, it's a rogue artist who painted that shed. It should have been like off the ground on stilts like every other shed in freaking new england okay those gd artists they just <laughs> they, they corrupt every faithful story in mormonism i know they're building the sheds like uh they're built on i don't know the gulf coast yeah up on anyway, stilts i just now you know when we put the picture up i see the shed in the background of course that's the shed because she meets him immediately after he comes out from the shed not in the shed out from under the shed um, so there's a depiction of Moroni having that whole event, uh, take place. And then you have this other really, uh, so this is just another documented instance of the Mary Whitmer story relayed by David Whitmer. David is having a conversation with Joseph F. Smith. Uh, he's, he mentions about his, uh, farm being plowed in, uh, harvested when he had so much work to do. And, and there's, and Joseph Smith's mother, sort of insinuates that maybe this is the three Nephites. Or, or was it Moroni? It, it could have been, but he... Yeah, it was Moroni. There's no three Nephites hanging around yet. It's Moroni, Moroni, Moroni. Yeah, but I think there was two people. Let me just... A uh, very pleasant, nice-looking old man suddenly appeared by the side of our wagon. Oh, it's the very, very top. Um, I had some 20 acres to plow, so I concluded I would finish plowing and then go to help with the translation of the Book of Mormon. I got up one morning to go to work as usual, and on going to the field, found between five to seven acres of my ground had been plowed during the night. And I think Joseph Smith's mother mentions it being two or three people that the neighbor reported had done the job. So, right. I don't know who did it, but it was done just as I would have done it myself. And the plow was left standing in the furrow. This is, by the way, if this sounds familiar, that's because it's a classic fairy tale trope. This is what a brownie does. And I'm not talking about Girl Scouts. Brownie is the kind of fairy folk who does good deeds for people, does their work for them while they're asleep. The classic example is, of course, has to do with the cobbler, right? Those elves are brownies, and they do nice things for people, and they're really, really helpful to have around. You just don't want to cross them because they don't like that. Right. And then it goes into the story of uh, Moroni. We shared this in, I think, the Cain episode. I think maybe it was the Kimura episode, but it was where 
a man walks up beside the wagon and he's heading to Kimura. They ask him if he wants a ride. As you mentioned earlier, he disappears. It's, it's the story preceding the shed story. Mm -hmm. And then Joseph F. Smith asked Whitmer, did you notice his appearance? And David Whitmer says, I should think I did. He was, I should think about five foot eight or nine inches tall and heavy set about such a man as James Van Cleve there, but heavier. His face was as large. He was dressed in a suit of brown woolen clothes. His hair and beard were white like Brother Pratt's, but his beard was not so heavy. I also remember that he had on his back a sort of knapsack with something in it, something in, shaped like a book. It was a messenger who had the plates, who had taken them from Joseph just prior to our starting from Harmony. Sometime after this, my mother was going to milk the cows, and he goes on to tell his mother's story. I'm just trying to make sure there's nothing new in this. Diligent laborers tribe, uh, so there's not. So there's that. Then we end up with, we'll sort of work towards our ending. I'm going to put up the phone line. Um, you got this really cool story. We're going to call it Monkey in a Box. <laughs> and I can't help but laugh. This is insane. Uh, I'll let you tell this. This. Oh, by the way, you're... You, uh, yep. Because I was once again searching. I'm sorry. Was that per? Was that prior one saying that David Whitmer was saying that the angel looked like Ray? Van, was it Lee Van Cleef? Is that who he said he looked like? <laughs> James Van Cleef. Okay, because I thought that's a pretty that's a pretty rough looking angel if it looks like. Well, yeah, Lee Van Cleef. I mean, okay. So anyway, that looks a little bit like Gary Busey on the ground there. <laughs> yeah. Nick Nolte and Gary Busey. Oh my gosh. Okay. So this story I've got to attribute to um, Rebecca Biblioteca, because I told her we're going to talk about uh, Moroni and we're going to tell some stories about him. She says, Oh, are you going to tell the story about the monkey in the box? And I said, <laughs> what are you talking about? The monkey in the box. She said, there's a story about Moroni and the monkey in the box. She was raised in such a conservative household that this was actually taught as gospel stuff in family home evenings. So she grew up hearing these kind of stories to which she attributes her early bent toward agnosticism. Okay, so here it is. This is in Mormonism Unveiled. It's attributed to um, Lehman, Lehman Copley. And this purports to be his testimony at an early trial of Joseph Smith. Now, this is published in 1840, 1834. The affidavits are probably gotten in 1833, so this is an early account. So, and Lehman Copley, of course, joined the church, and uh, he was a member of the church out in Kirtland, Ohio. So, and he had a farm. Anyway, we don't have to get into the United Order all of a sudden, but um, here it is from Mormonism Unveiled, the story of the monkey in the box. The latter story was related by Lehman Copley, who had been an elder of the society, i.e. the church, and was at the time for aught that appeared. Under oath before two magistrates of Painesville Township, on a trial where the prophet had sworn the peace against one of his seceding brethren, Mr. Copley testified that after the Mormon brethren arrived here from the Susquehanna, okay, arrived here from the Susquehanna, one of them by the name of Joseph Knight, related to him a story as having long after it was confirmed to him by Joseph himself, okay? And I'm not sure if that's saying that Joseph Knight had it confirmed by Joseph himself or if that Lehman Copley had it confirmed for him by Joseph himself. It's not exactly clear there. 
But here's the story. Who again related it in the following manner. Quote, after he, this is Joseph Smith, after he had finished translating the Book of Mormon, he again buried up the plates in the side of a mountain by command of the Lord. Sometime after this, he was going through a piece of woods on a bypath when he discovered an old man dressed in ordinary gray apparel. Now, you'd think that Joseph has seen this old guy, Moroni, enough times that he'd recognize him by now. But no, it's still, he doesn't know who it is. And maybe this old guy keeps changing his appearance. Almost like Moroni's on the road to Damascus. Yes. Well, at least they both have a road in common. So, by command of the Lord, sometime after this, he was going through a piece of woods on a bypath when he discovered an old man dressed in ordinary gray apparel, sitting upon a log, having in his hand or nearby a small box. On approaching him, he asked him what he had in his box, because that's what you ask an old guy sitting by the side of the road with a box next to him. What's in the box, old man? On approaching him, he asked him what he had in his box, to which the old man replied that he had a monkey. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is this is like one of the best stories for Mormon history ever. <laughs> He's got a monkey, or as Inspector Clouseau would say, a minky. So to which the old man replied that he had a monkey, and for five coppers, he might see it. Joseph Smith might be able to see his monkey. So Moroni, is that a monkey in your box, or are you just glad to see me? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? You want to see my monkey in a box? <laughs> oh my gosh! I hope fan trick of of eighteen, you know, thirty five. <laughs> I'd like to see an old man's monkey. That's the first time, the first thing I think whenever I see an old man, I want to see his monkey. On approaching him, he asked, okay, I keep going back to that. Okay, he had a monkey. And for five coppers, Joseph might see it. That's a relatively inexpensive price to see a man's monkey. Joseph answered that he would not give a cent to see a monkey, for he had seen a hundred of them. I just want to stop you here. I've seen as many curloms, <laughs> I've seen as many curloms and kumoms as Joseph Smith saw monkeys. Well, they they inhabit the jungles of Upper New York. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Joseph Smith hasn't seen a monkey. I don't I don't know where in Palmyra, New York, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> hundreds. I've seen a hundred of them. <laughs> It's the Bandar log that inhabits the jungles of upstate New York. Apologists are going to correct me and shoot me a reference where Joseph Smith went to a zoo or something. I, and he saw hundred, hundred, hundreds of monkeys in the zoo. Okay, so Joseph answered he would not give a cent to see a monkey, for he had seen a hundred of them. He then asked the old man where he was going. These are the two questions you ask all old men. What's in your box and where are you going? Where are you going? In that order. Um, where he's going, he said he was going to Charzee, C H A R Z E E. Charzee, E E. E E E. I have got no idea where Charzee is. And, and neither did Joseph Smith. Joseph then passed on and not recollecting any such place in that part of the country named Charzee. <laughs> 
began to ponder over the strange interview and finally asked the Lord the meaning of it. The Lord told him that the man he saw was Moroni with the plates, and if he had given him the five freaking coppers, he might have got his plates again. Joseph Smith almost almost got him, almost got them back. Missed it by that much. <laughs> it's the old monkey in the box trick. Oh, That's the second God. time I've fallen for it this week. <laughs> <laughs> so here, now getting just a bit serious for a second, okay. Um, the interesting thing about this story is that, to me, well, first off, the monkey, obviously. But... <laughs> But the fact that, according to the story, the translation has been completed. At the very beginning, it says, after he had finished translating the Book of Mormon, he doesn't need the plates anymore in order to translate. Uh, 1830. <laughs> so, so what? I'm sorry, what? This was, this was in the winter of 1830. I'm, I'm just teasing. It had to have been somewhere around 1830, just after 1830. Or at least after June, maybe, of April 29. Yeah. April yeah, June, April to June, 1829 is generally the idea. Palmyra. Yes. So, but but the translation is finished and he sees this guy. So he it's not that he didn't pay five pennies or coppers in order to see the gold plates. It's that he had the opportunity to get the gold plates back, not to translate, but finally to have the gold. That's how I'm reading this. Yeah. There's no other thing he would be doing with it. He was or, be really disappointed when he learned that this was Tumbaga. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like the old man here, Morona. He's like, uh, what was it? Monty, um, Monty Holland. Let's make a, a deal. You could have had a brand new car. <laughs> but you took the five coppers. You failed at Plinko. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea, and I think that that's, that's the idea here, but I also see the story. As being, I mean, there, there's a reason behind this story, as as outlandish as it may sound at first blush. But I think that if Joseph Smith told this story, the story itself is designed to account for why it is that he doesn't have the gold plates anymore. Mm. People getting sick and tired of hearing him say the angel took him, the angel took him. So he comes up with a story which is self-deprecating in order to show, oh, I could have had the plates. I could have had a V8. But it was my fault because I didn't pay five pennies to see it, or five coppers. I'm assuming that's pennies. It also strikes me that any time Joseph Smith might have ran into a person on the street while he's with his associates, and that person would have said something ridiculous or would have done something ridiculous or would have been senile, Joseph can always ask God, and God can give him some incredible meaning to the experience that's faith promoting to all the people following along. Yes. Oh, by the way, you found a picture. It was an old yeah. picture that was actually taken of this incident. Fortunately, there was someone nearby. There he is. There's the yeah. man. There's the box. There's the monkey. There's the monkey. No tumbaga. And no gold plates, by the way. Because actually, there was never a monkey in the box. It was no. actually the gold plates, right? There was. By the we way, once again I have the strange uh, transformation from animal to something else. Yeah. You corrected this, by the way, that that's not a monkey. That is a, looks like a chimpanzee. 
If it is a chimpanzee, it's, I don't think it's technically a monkey. I think it's an ape, a member of the ape family. Yeah, but you so, said this was the funniest picture that AI came up with. And I said, well, let's go with it then. But you would think if Joseph had seen hundreds of them, he would know the difference. You would think so. I mean, it's not Tarzan of the monkeys. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, this is it, right? This is the death of Moroni. I didn't know that we knew how Moroni died. But this, we do. This was what I built the entire episode around. I learned this data point. <laughs> and then I worked backwards like the apologist and we we created the rest of the episode but I I thought this was cool because I had never heard it you had never heard it and my hunch was that no one in the audience essentially maybe there's one other than maybe Vogel has ever heard this the death of Moroni at a meeting at Spanish Fork Utah County by the way if you ask AI art to imagine a Caucasian Native American it doesn't do that good. And it actually sometimes spits out that you are doing something hateful and won't let you continue. So all we're not of being hateful, Americans, we're just being Mormon. Um, all right, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, yeah. in other words, every native American I created for the AI art had to have a native American colored skin. Otherwise it saw what I was doing as being racist or hateful. Well, which, at least he has yeah. a sword in his hand because that's definitely native American. Yeah. It's almost, yeah, it almost looks like a, just a, one of these ones that's just rounded into a point at the end. But at a meeting at Spanish Fork, Utah, which is just as real as the swords the apologists come up with, the, with the obsidian points to them that the Native Americans did use, but Mark doesn't Weedle. even match the story. Yes, they Mark Weedle. Like, yeah, look at that. As a, as a meet, at a meeting at Spanish Fork, Utah, in the winter of 1896, Brother Higginson stated in my presence that Thomas B. Marsh told him, Milk and Strippings guy, also, the other lady in the milk and strippings was one of the plural wives of Joseph Smith, but that's neither here nor there. Told him that the prophet Joseph Smith told him, Thomas Marsh, he being president of the 12, that he became very anxious to know something of the fate of Moroni. And in answer to prayer, the Lord gave Joseph a vision in which appeared a wild country. And on the scene, by the way, this is the same kid who sat down in front of his family before the Book of Mormon plates were even given to him, and recounted to his mother and father and siblings all of the goings-on and happenings, the environments, all the stories about the Lamanites and the Nephites. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm thinking of something. I'll get to it. I'll try and stop laughing at my punchline, which I'm anticipating while you're telling the story. <laughs> he became very anxious to know the fate of Moroni and answered a prayer. Lord gave Joseph with a vision in which he appeared a wild country, and on the scene was Moroni, after whom were six Indians in pursuit. That's their writing, I would say, indigenous people or Native Americans. He stopped, and one of the Indians stepped forward and measured swords with him. Uh, Moroni smote him. Lay on, Macduff. <laughs> and he fell dead. Another Indian advanced. Which Shakespeare play is that? Uh, Macduff. It's called Macduff. Macbeth. Right. I'm kidding. Macbeth. Moroni smote him, and he fell dead. Another Indian advanced and contended with him. This, this Indian also fell by his sword. The third Indian then stepped forward and met the same fate. A fourth afterwards contended with him, but in the struggle with the fourth, Moroni being exhausted, was killed. Thus ended the life of Moroni. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, if I were doing the screenplay, uh, when he's all exhausted and he's going down into the fourth guy, that's when his monkey would swing into action and save him. 
Yeah, this the monkey would jump. His up. monkey pops out of his box and takes on the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, LED is saying, "Isn't Moroni an angel? How can an angel be killed?" This is this is when he became an angel. Mortality. This is yeah, when Moroni done burying the plates after his trip all around the the hemispheric uh, United States and Central South America. Uh, I'm saying that wrong, but his travel through all these continents out to Manti, over to Palmyra, buries the plates. And then his job is done, and as he makes his way around, he is confronted by uh, six Indians. Doesn't say Lamanites, it just says six Indians. Very and, notable, cut your throatable Indians. Yeah. So now we all know the death of the in the in the mortal life of Moroni. We now know of his death. What was that a reference to? <laughs> uh, Annie, get your gun. It's okay. Okay. Um, and that, my friends, is. Voice from the Dust playing on Isaiah chapter 29, The Life of Moroni. I, thought, I had no idea that The Life of Moroni was this exciting. Yeah, and it is. A monkey's in the box, fights with Indians with his death, uh, crawling underneath a, a shed that already sits on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, folks, if you're not drunk by now in, in the comforts of your own home, I don't know what else is going to get it done. Um, Moroni was as malleable as the solid gold plates he carried. Yeah. Folks, if anybody wants to call in and, and discuss any part of this show, it is 662-667-6667. And if you do want to discuss any part of the show, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I do want to play, by the way, folks, um, we survive on donations. Um, we, I, I always hate having this message, but we really do need your donations. It's how we do this. All of our content is free. We don't charge anything to join the show, to, to download the podcast audio on our websites. Um, if you go to mormonismlive.org, you can donate there. And I'm actually going to just, if you don't mind, RFM, I'm going to play a quick one-minute video to ask folks to, to support our show. I hope it has a monkey in it. It doesn't. Well, it does have one monkey. <laughs> Hello, friends of Mormon Discussion Incorporated. I'm Bill Real, founder and CEO, reaching out to our incredible community. Our mission is to support those examining the truth claims of Mormonism and those redefining their relationship with it. Our acclaimed lineup of podcasts, including Mormonism Live, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Discussion, and others, offers a space for truth and healing. But we need your help. Your donations power our work, expanding our outreach, improving our content, and creating new initiatives. Visit mormondiscussions.org Click the donate button and make a difference today. Donate to your favorite show, like this one, as your support empowers us to empower others. Thank you for being a part of the change. Together, we're making real impact. All right. So, folks, we really, we really can use your help. The show survives on donations. RFM and I come here every week, Wednesday at 6.20 p.m. Mountain Time, having put in a week's worth of research or working out an interview with somebody uh, who's going through something that has to do with a current event in the church or has an interesting life connected to Mormonism. We try to do our best to cover uh, all of these things in depth, I think, like nobody else. And I think tonight you saw that. Uh, I don't think you would find half of this material in any other location. And so, folks, I would really love it if you could go to mormondiscussions.org or mormonismlive.org, click the Donate button, and donate to Mormonism Live. There's a drop-down window. Pick whatever show you want to pick. But this is Mormonism Live, and we would really appreciate your donations. RFM, you ready for phone calls? Yes. You know, we had a monkey when I was a kid. 
did it turn out the same way your pet dog did? Oh, how awful. I'm sorry. You, you, I thought you were bring that up. Why don't you just throw that in my face? No, you, you open the door. (laughs) If you mean dead. Uh, Yes. Okay. So you have a dead monkey story. No, just, we had a monkey and it was, it just, it didn't work out. You know, it was a ring tailed monkey. We called it Tudor. So it was a ring tailed Tudor. You really had a pet monkey? Yes. And he didn't like my dad. And my dad was the one who had to, you know, maneuver him from place to place. And my dad would wear these leather gloves. And the monkey's fangs were stronger than the gloves. So he would bite my dad at pretty well. There was no love lost between my dad and this monkey. How long but did you three have- boys, we loved the monkeys because we, monkey because we had a lot in common. But eventually it didn't work out. He had to go to the zoo where he end up, ended up dying. He was put in with the other monkeys in the monkey cage. And the story that we got from the zoo was that someone had fed him a poison peanut. Does that sound uh, likely to you? No. I guess it's I, possible. No, I think the other monkey saw him as an outcast and killed him. Yeah. Anyway, that was the story of Tudor, the ring-tailed monkey. You, Maven, do you believe this story? Shake your head. She just laughs. She's not, she's not answering. You had a pet monkey named Tudor. I, I'm just, yes. Doesn't I, everyone? I believe I've known you for whatever it is now, five, six years. And I've, this is the first time ever hearing about your pet monkey. Did well, that you, doesn't mean it's not true. I don't tell you, you, you all my trouble? secrets at once. I have to say something I, for the wedding night. I believe you. you. Did you spank him? No. Did you ever, oh, did you ever, spank, no. Did you ever spank your monkey? No. <laughs> I, I feel like they were trendy there for a little bit. Yeah, pet Michael monkey. Jackson had a pet monkey. Bubbles. It's possible. Yeah, Michael Jackson's monkey bubbles. I totally. Let's uh let's go to the phone lines. I've said enough stuff to get me in trouble with the FCC today. So let's uh not to mention the SPCA. Yeah, well yeah, well the FCC was but yeah, sure. <laughs> Spanking right. the monkey. No, no, no. There's only one call in the phone bank, uh, phone bank, folks. If you would like to get on the show, you can dial uh, 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS, uh, and that will get into the show. We've got one. It looks like maybe it's an Edward. Edward. Um, let me just unmute this. Edward, are you there? I'm, the, I'm here, yeah. What do you think about the monkey in the box? <laughs> Okay, so I'm kind of glad I got on this call because of everything that's going on that's really serious. Um, This episode has been kind of funny. Um, I just wanted to say one serious thing. I watched, like, Ward Radio the other day, and they did did a script on the plates and how, like, Joseph Smith bought those people off and things like that. And I'm like, oh, I wish that you guys would do an episode on that. But... um, but why I was really calling is because uh, RSM, like, what is with you and DC and Marvel? Like, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> okay, yank the call, Bill. All right, all right. Get him off the air. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey, I'm wearing something different tonight. Right. So this was the wrong night for you to call now. It's certainly well, not I DC. I don't even know what that shirt is. Yeah, this is, this is Invincible. Is. This is a, a different, a completely different brand. This is a TV series, I believe, on Amazon Prime. Oh. If I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. And it's it's absolutely phenomenal. Oh. What are you a DC fan? Is that what I'm hearing from you, Edward? 
Yes, sir. Like DC started the whole thing. Like, um, and to call them two dimensional is one thing. And then to say like same bat time, same bat channel, like, blah. Anyway, <laughs> did you play the drinking game yeah. tonight, Edward? I'm I'm two in. You're yeah. two, you're two in. You only saw two two absurdities. That was it. <laughs> or were you taking sips all night long? Okay, so you're a DC fan. No, Is that no, what you're no. saying, Edward? <clears throat> yes, sir. But like very hard. Like you know, because I fight with my kids. Like they're Marvel fans, and I say, well, if DC had the money that Disney has, then DC. If they made movies as well, they would have the money. Sorry, Fred. Uh, Edward, go ahead. <laughs> No, they keep rolling no, out crap movies. No, that is not <laughs> no, it's because it's because Disney was behind the whole thing. There's never been a thing like um, the Marvel movie phenomenon. And if DC had that, if they could have done like a Green Arrow, Green Lantern movie where they like stepped outside of the um, where they uh, had talent and a script show. and good direction. You mean like a plot? Uh, yeah, and some humor thrown in. Yeah, it could be like Marvel too, except then it wouldn't be DC anymore. Uh, uh, we'd have to have lunch together, uh, Sam, to have to um, discuss that. But yeah, let's do it sometime. And I think Jonathan yeah. Lynn likes DC as well. So you know, it's not like you know I hate you. It's fine if you like DC and I like Marvel. I like to think that we can still be friends. Thank you for the call. Ed. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, just not super friends. Okay. No, no, All right, what so was? What do you want to finish? Oh, oh I just wanted to say, love you guys, love you guys, and love your shows, and you do a great job. And, um, yeah, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. thank you for calling. Thanks for watching. Walt asks, "Who needs a plot when you have Jason Momoa?" Jason Momoa is a fantastic, charismatic, a huge catch. <laughs> if you'll pardon the term, as Aquaman, but even Jason Momoa and incredible special effects prove that it's no substitute for a story. There you go. So there is no one else in the call bank. Uh, nobody else, I think, had anything to add to the story. I think we covered more Moroni in his totality, and uh, I don't think there's anything left to add. But there's Earth no to Earth. There. And so uh, I'll, I'd love to give you a chance to say anything else you want to say, RFM, and otherwise we can close out the show. I think I've said everything I had to say to Edward. Awesome. Folks, we appreciate every one of you joining in. Uh, we've got 554 live folks watching at the moment. Um, if you would hit the like button. dead folks. Yeah, there probably are a few of them. Uh, I like to think that Melvin's watching from heaven. Maybe Moroni's watching from heaven. That would be M. Russell Ballard. Moroni, yeah. definitely. By the way, he, he passed at a really convenient moment, didn't he? Is there a convenient moment to pass? There is when you're about to face uh, a lot more uh, accusations and, and, and the leaders of your church don't really like what you got yourself into. Uh, presuming that, you know, that caught him off guard or something. But all I say, I know there's a lot of discussion about it. All I can say is this isn't the 40 year old who's in the prime of his health, right? He's in good health. And even 40 year olds in good health will, will conk over uh, for some reason or other. I'm thinking of, uh, I think it's John Ritter who had this uh, this heart defect from birth that uh, just didn't know about and goes boom. And so he may have been 50 at the time, but that will happen. But a guy who's 95, who's already lived longer than 99% of us are ever going to live. Him, him conking, I'm thinking, yeah, everybody's got to go sometime. And 95 is as good a time as any. I would 
also think too, it would be easy to, I mean, with, with everybody in the 12, the only way to get to the top is through the, the lives of the people above you. And especially with past presidents being like fully in the throes of dementia, one would assume that maybe it would be a little bit more common to die at suspiciously convenient times, but they don't seem to be down for that. So that's why I don't think that it has anything to do with the Tim Ballard stuff. Yeah, I, I like to think of Bednar pulling a cross between Richard III and the Borgia family and poisoning everybody above him in order to work his way up to the throne. You said Borgia, not not Liz, not the Lizzie Borden family. Uh, <laughs> okay, just want to... I, I think the Borgias was before Borden. I could be mistaken. It might be from Italy. It might have to do subtle, with... <laughs> Borden gave her dad 40 wax, gave her mother 41 or something like that. Yeah, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax, or for that father, I forget. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her the other one, 41. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I just know that it was a convenient moment. That's all I was saying. I wasn't insinuating right. anything. Just seemed really, <laughs> I could just picture the church lady. Well, isn't that convenient? Well, I can picture the entire PR department going, thank goodness. Yeah, thank, there is a God. <laughs> The then I got that from Nuance Ho, who did a brief little thing about impersonating the people in the PR department when they got news that Elder Ballard had passed away. Yeah. All right, folks. I appreciate each of you. RFM, Maven, you guys are awesome. Have a great week, everybody. And uh, we will see you guys all back here uh, next week.